Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome listeners to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don this uh, Monday morning and a fine day it is too, thankfully. I've had a busy week and Jaspreet's... um, yeah, she's obviously getting enough sleep. She's got no bags under her eyes that I can see on the other side. She's been up watching cricket all the time. She didn't watch the uh, World Cup rugby at all, but I know she's a cricket, uh, avid cricket watcher. So that's the problem. It's not because you're reading council papers, is it, Jasper? Man, you know how to make a girl feel good. No, no, Don, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I, I just spend my time binge watching TV and right. cricket. I, yes, you'll be gloating because India does look like it's the favourite to to win. Everyone's sort of saying, with rather, well, not everyone, New Zealanders, I heard say they'd rather face India in the semi-finals than the final. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that is that is cricket is one place where my loyalties get divided. But having said that, the last cricket World Cup, I remember getting up at four and watching that heartbreaking final mm-hmm. super over against England. Gosh. Anyway, hey, but but yeah, look, it's been another busy week for you. I know you've hit the uh, hit the newspapers as well, um, listeners. She's uh, Jasper's out there at the coal face this time, arguing that um, sea level rise and um, movement around our coastal areas and, and potential for flooding around the coast is 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 uh, hitting her um, board papers. So. You know, she's been quoted on the paper, and hopefully we're going to have a couple of guests on later in the day in, in this program that will um, expose some of this stuff. So what do you what do you make of all that, Jaspreet? What do you make of uh, of the, the, the way society has been conditioned to believe that everything's going to be to be a bit... Doom and doom. Yeah. And that's that's when we make stupid decisions, John, out of when we are, you know, too panicked, fearful, all rational thought goes out of your brains and i think for many of us the last three years have been pretty pretty t- uh crazy and that fight or flight mode is how people function and or the at uh, the other extreme you people just shut down and i've seen that because it's been so much for so long that they just can't be bothered anymore with what's coming yeah i think that's true i think there's a lot of people getting quite complacent uh they don't understand the sheer uh, magnitude. size magnitude of of uh the cost structures that people are trying to apply to to people that pay the bills the the ratepayers and taxpayers and and you know i've um i was listening to anthony albanese's uh story with you know taking over and uh, supporting tuvalu and getting refugees from tuvalu well you know they've been saying and Gutierrez has been in Tuvalu and sort of standing up knee deep in water and you know these are going <laughs> to go underwater these uh, these islands and I think um former Prime Minister Ardern's father was a policeman on um on Tuvalu but anyway that's an aside it's an um, Tuva- in the Pacific Tuva- Tuva- Tuvalu listeners uh I have information to show that in recent times Tuvalu grew 78 acres of landmass uh, on on its main atoll. So look, this this over egging stuff by um, the people that want things to be uh, around a climate affair, like Guterres, you know, the global boiling man. Um, we we've got to actually have a dose of cynicism put back in society. And one of our guests today, believe it or not, is a guy, uh, Doctor uh, Yap Hanakamp, and he he asks us to have a skeptical mind, have an inquiring mind. That's part of his part of his thesis. 
Yeah, so, a, straight, a straight talking Dutchman. Mm. I am looking forward to that. But, yeah. but you know, we've also had this uh, nonsense again over the weekend on from News Hub. Health experts recommend people wear masks and celebrate Christmas outdoors amid an, another COVID-19 wave. So this doesn't end. So just like the atolls, it, it might have grown by 78 acres. Who cares about what the truth is? I am beginning to think that, you know, that 2021 slogan from Arden, two shots for summer. I think what they mean is two shots every summer. Okay. I'm pretty sure some will be on their fifth or sixth by now. Well, I humiliated myself on Saturday night and watched TV One News, and there was the <laughs> usual suspects. Um, uh, they'd been they'd been analysing the sewage in uh, a few uh, places around New Zealand and found um, that COVID was rife again. And there we had um, Michael Baker back there talking about it. We can have wave after wave, and of course, uh, each time it gets you, you are damaging your body one step further. So, um, good work, Michael. Yeah, another another cheery Saturday night's viewing uh, <laughs> that I didn't stick around to watch for long. But hey, there's the, these people that do want to put a climate of fear into everything. Uh, the anxiety, anxiousness around our children, um, it's just it just is mind blowing how they continue to do it. And of course, it's been going on for some time. But see, Greta Thunberg, dear Greta, I used to call her Greta Iceberg. She um. She predicted that we'd be um, all terminated by now. So, you know, lucky for Greta and us, we're all okay. But but you make sure you get that council sorted because I don't want to be paying rates for um, coastal inundation in 2300. Sorry. Neither do I, neither do I want our, our ratepayers to be funding that, Donovan, which is why one has to question things and we are using the Ministry of Environment is pushing modeling uh, based on, of course, the IPCC models, which is 8.5, RCP 8.5, which is improbable, it itself says, but it's complemented by our uh, domestic New Zealand sea rice tool, and which is not even, you know, peer reviewed, not that I give much credence to peer review these days, but it is a teetering tower of terrible, absolutely ter terrible predictions and terrible assumptions and suppositions. But modeling yeah. the tool of tyrants, it's, it can keep on pushing all of these, you know, forecasts out to 2300. But the mm. fiscal pain, the financial pain of that won't, won't be waiting till 2300. It'll going to hit you in 2023, 2024. And that's what worries me. But this yeah. economic downturn we see around here, it is uh, not acceptable. Yeah, when I was young, I used to have model cars, model toys. Then we talked about fashion models. Um, you know, the word modeling is unbelievably um, uh, damaged nowadays, in my opinion, because so many of these people are making so many predictions that are so outrageous. I don't know why we fund them. I, I genuinely don't know why we fund them, but we do. We do. And, and Meanwhile, yes. speaking of the same thing, you know, what can people afford and what they cannot. Now, last week, Don and I, we spoke about the funding that is coming from the Ministry of Ethnic Communities and what is being funded, because a whole lot we cannot fund. But uh, for some uh, some particular strata of a society, we can seem to find the money when we need it. And why am I talking about it? 
I'm talking about it because we, we I thought we live in a democracy. We live in a place where everyone is considered equal and we should be working towards a needs-based uh, you know, funding for whatsoever it is. Now, recently in my role on my board, there came a request for funding, a small amount, two or $3,000 from ratepayers of the area where I live for uh, a certain social event. Now, uh, listeners, my area, my board, this particular area is uh, listed under MB's Social Deprivation Index. It is 10. It is the most, that's the most deprived category, you know, New Zealand lists its social deprivation from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst. So the request came from that area, but it doesn't fit the criteria. So the two, three grand that was supposed, uh, that was requested, I had to turn it down. It doesn't meet the parameters. But meanwhile, I look at what, and this was for certain senior citizens, social event. So I went and looked at the Ministry of Ethnic Communities. What senior citizens do they fund? Because obviously, Kiwi citizens, Kiwi senior citizens living in an area with economic deprivation level number 10 are not fit, considered fit. So went through their uh, projects that they have funded. And it seems... Anything goes. There's about the Korean Society of Auckland to support senior citizens. There's a $20,300 funded in 2021. Waikato Senior Citizens Association. Their fitness and well-being program, $4,500. Waikato Senior Indians, again and again, I see three or four entries. They seem to get five grand a year. No questions asked. Then Pacific Asia-Pacific Indian Ladies Senior Association, 8,000 Palmerston. Pacific Asian Ladies, Community Initiatives for Seniors, Christchurch, another five grand. Auckland Senior Support Caring Group called We Act We Help, two grand. Chinese Senior Citizens, 12,000. Dunedin Senior Citizens, Chinese Dunedin Senior Chinese Citizens Association. Let's see how many. They got three lots of 14,155. That's 42 grand, another another five, 47,000. We have gone into parsing society into as many silos as possible, then cherry picking who we want to fund. And I, I will be quite unabashed and say here that many of the people I've seen in the Indian community, senior citizens, if they have been here, say in the Waikato, where some of this funding is gone, we are talking of a community that is well off, really well off. We're talking of a community that's been here since the 1890s. I know some of the earliest Sikh Punjabi families came out here uh, off ships that were headed for Fiji to the sugarcane plantations, and they came out here, bush and scrub cutters. And since then, if you look around the Morrisville, or generally most of Waikato, it's a well-settled community. But there is funding that goes on year after year after year to senior citizens of all different demographics, Tamil, Asian, Indian, Chinese, Shiv Charan, I don't even know what that means, Korean senior citizens, Wellington Senior Citizens Health and Happiness Association Incorporated. Health and Happiness Senior Citizens Association Incorporated. There seems to be no problem giving it. Well, I, I noted, yeah, I noted since uh, your work has um, given me 1,552 different grants being given out to eth ethnic communities um, 
groups since 2016. Um, do you know what the total was for that? Was it how many million was it? 13, 13, 14 million dollars. It yeah. began from a small amount, a few hundred thousand a year in 2016. Right now, the ministry's own page says they fund $4.2 million a year in various projects. And that's where the problem lies. Once you start suddenly giving ethnicity-based funding, there's going to be a whole lot of associations that crop up. And I don't blame them. You found a funding stream, you organize yourself, set up a trust or association and start putting an application after application. But where has the need-based funding gone? Where has that gone? Oh, look, that becomes a culture. Uh, and I know that I used to chair and be involved in different trusts, giving out money uh, through farming organizations. And the, you're right, Jasper, every year, the same little club, same entity seem to put their hand up. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a look. It's almost like a pro forma letter you get, mm. um, and they just might have a different secretary or a different chairman. Um, but it's a, it's, it's just something they do every year. Let's put our hand up. It's a culture that is wrong, and you're, you're right to highlight it. And it would be really, really uh, intriguing to know um, how many of these communities absolutely need it uh, at all. Yeah, because yeah, my background is, and as you know from ACT, is. Uh, it's a hand up, not a hand out. And if you don't need a hand up because you're well enough uh, off, then you shouldn't have your hand out. Completely. Mm. But it's it's just like the winter energy payment on. Is that means tested? I don't think that is. No, it's not. It's um, it's just uh, given over sixty fives. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's not. It's. I think that it's completely inappropriate, but um, I don't think it's going to be turned back by any parliament now. I, I think like these applications are pretty standard. If I look at the Dunedin Senior Citizens Association, that got $14,155 in 2022 and another one, another 14155 in this, it says May to April 24 funding application, exact same amount. So it is just literally doing it again and again. The Baikero Senior Indian Citizens Association, $5,000, $5,500. So they have a roundabout sum mm. that they account for. And the only narration that's given under purpose, it says daytime activities and fitness projects, improving senior citizens' digital accessibility, community development, positive aging and well-being of the Chinese community, annual regular cultural activities, ladies' weekend retreat. Like, seriously? Seriously? Mm. Mm. And you've talked about your community, your, your disadvantaged communities that can't uh, access funding for for sort of nice-to-have things, yeah, like, a, and these like, are... a, like a bit of an afternoon out somewhere for, for people that just have, don't have any way of getting out. Um, completely don't if anyone you know you've been towards ohio nightcaps this area it is it is not exactly yeah it's, it's disadvantaged it used to be a mining town and it's now um pretty much uh not struggling. much left yeah it's yeah. struggling it's horrible to see but it happens no. in a lot of small town new zealand sadly um and I don't know how you change it. I mean, I know your local township of Tuatapere is really struggling again, especially since COVID. It was poking its nose up a bit before as a sort of a destination on the way to the, the Humbridge, Humbridge track. track. But, you know, COVID has um, mucked it around again. But, gee, there's lots of things going on in our community. And one day we'll have a bigger discussion, no doubt, on the ethnic, um, ethnic uh, communities.
ministry. It's yeah, funding. Yeah. And I noticed that David Seymour's talking about getting rid of the ministry for Pacific um Pacifica. So maybe he just needs to go a bit wider and um, but the point get us all is back. Now when you've gotten people used to the funding stream, mm. Don, the moment you pull it, you'll be called a racist. Oh. You'll oh, yeah, be called, yeah. you know, not not being diverse, not being accepting, and so on. But again, with all these people, if I look at it, half of these groups are, you know, Indian Tamil Tamil yeah. from Tamil Nadu, a state of India. Would they be getting that in India? No, yeah, I can tell mean. you that. No, there is no such schemes. You would, you know, if there was a Diwali or another festival, you would uh, put the pot around, and everyone would, yeah, contribute, or it might be a potluck or something. The government doesn't come to the party. And here we seem to think that's our job. It's it's been something that I've been observing for all my adult life, and especially since the '85 reforms, I thought we'd kick this stuff for touch. But it's just growing and growing and growing, and it's it is a culture that I can't take. But um, uh, as I said many times, we just become too complacent as um, taxpayers, and we don't. We don't check the value proposition very no. well. And, and of course, we've said it last week, this change of government that's still not past go yet, but so we've got Hipkins in as a caretaker <laughs> prime minister. saddle, yeah. Oh, God. Um, that wasn't a resounding win for the centre because you couldn't call them centre-right. It no. wasn't a resounding win. So that says to me that people still feel, you know, to a large extent, uh, they want that that um, safe hand of government money uh, wrapping around them. And I just, of course, I call it the cruel hand, but mm. a lot of people think it's safe. And by the way, talking about government, wasn't it a bit odd? I read an article the other day in Point of Order, and I hadn't even, I'm not following the news that well, but in Point of Order, Ali Newman, uh, Litterman wrote that um, the Electoral Commission is under intense scrutiny over its decision to set up a polling booth at the Manurero Marai, where the Maori Party candidate was the CEO. What the hell <laughs> is going on? No conflict I mean, of interest there. Well, Donald Trump needs to have a lesson in this. <laughs> so here, having a polling station, and it concludes this article, having a polling station at a candidate's workplace would raise serious uh, questions, even if the result was much more decisive. Of course, um, the Labour Party candidate only lost by four. So um, no, Don, it's all kosher. Don, Don, you're spending a rap with this, none. Oh, Something <laughs> I I can't believe that that anyone would have the temerity to do that, putting a polling booth in a marae where the CEO is a candidate. Unbelievable! Oh gosh! And so, what else have we got on um, this week? I am. Um, I was glad to see the mailer from Groundsville. They are speaking about uh, Agri Zero. Don, yes. you and I have spoken about that industry-led, supposedly industry-led alliance to yep. reduce emissions and uh, I think committing $165 million of shareholder money into this uh, reduction of methane and carbon emissions and all of that. No one talks about the science, but God, the collaborations that are on. So I'm, I'm glad uh, Groundswell has picked up on that, as well as on the fact that they've remarked that the sea level rise modelling seems to be quite absurd. Good on they them. Must, they must be listening to you, Jasper. Uh, not, not me. They listen to you. Because uh, <laughs> I, they do. So what I've noticed is, um, um, 
and, and you could be arrogant about it. I feel like saying, what took them so long? Because um, the same sort of stuff I've been talking about for 25 years, the same sort of feeling, the inf- John, it's coming from all directions, you know, yes, to, be, to be very honest. And I'm, I'm not defending anyone. I mean, you and I, we listened to the sustainable finance webinar recently. I know you didn't listen to all of it. Some keywords. I listened to all of it. Now, yes. listeners, the Aotearoa circle is what the outfit uh, calls itself. And they held a webinar about a month ago on, you know, the way financing and other things are going to be going on in this country. And they had all the major banks on speaking about farm financing and which way the winds are blowing. I'm going to play a wee bit out of this. This is Mark Patterson from ASB speaking about what ja- James, is coming. James, James Patterson, I James think. James Patterson. Thank you, Don. Yes. Yep. yep. And this sort of ties in with what we had discussed with Richard McIntyre from Feds about, you know, all the banks are now going towards COP3 emissions. Pontera's email came this week just gone. Scope 3 emissions, for those who don't know, it is now going after emissions behind the farm gate. So effectively telling farmers, we've done what we could at the factory. We've checked out our old boilers, put in, uh, you know, energy efficient stuff and electrified what we could. And now, balls in your court. Mm. So listen to what they have, to, what ASB has to say in terms of farm financing and what farmers need to be doing. And just a hint, not a lot of it is about farming. It's about a lot of diversity initiatives and whatnot. The proven fibre sector, which is a volume export sector, that's that's a really important distinction. Um, so there's no, no unintended consequences there. We're seeing a lot of KPIs around waste and packaging reduction, water, efficient water usage, and really critically, the social factors, which, which can't be left behind. And that looks like workplace diversity, work conditions, including all the modern um, slavery considerations, employee development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one thing that's important to note within these structures is that they really m- need to move beyond compliance and BAU. So they have to push a business. They they have to be ambitious, science based, and really fit hand and glove in with with strategy. So you'll see in most of these structures in there sustainability linked loan space that they will align to, to national and global climate targets and United, United Nation um, sustainable development goals. Don, did he say United Nations sustainable development goals? Did you hear that? I think I heard that. It wasn't an aberration. He meant it. Uh, and I, you, know, you said you watched the whole damn thing. I could not watch um, what was it, an hour and a bit of that stuff. Uh, it was too much for me, this... It- in another life all of the banks colluding together i would you know this would be called collusion now it's Mm. called saving the planet but this would be called collusion with Mm. the non-unelected unaccountable united nations setting the goals and uh, farmers now being herded in a direction here of diversity and modern slavery practices and whatnot and if you listen to Jill and me speaking about the UN SDGs last week, we discussed SDG 8 and, you know, that said decent work and how Auckland University now has a center, research center for modern slavery and uh, how they are seeing that migrants are being uh, exploited. 
And then I read out the list, the latest list of employers stood down by MB for poor labor practices. 90% of them were erstwhile migrants exploiting newcomers. Or it might even be actually a convenient uh, alliance to get residency and then suddenly one turns on the other. Who knows? But the same thing is omnipresent everywhere. And uh, it, 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 there is going to come a reckoning. There is going to come a reckoning because there's only so much that the producer can keep sustaining all of this. Oh, and the big squeeze, the straight jacket, the noose around your neck. It, isn't it interesting how um, if, 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 for instance, a Fonterra supplier says, no, I'm not going to tick that box, um, perhaps there might be the threat of not getting their milk picked up. If you don't tick the box for the uh, credentials the bank has for you, you're not going to get your financing. Um, and so it's a horrible circle and it just puts you into the squeeze of compliance. You have no way out if you want to stay with that business. And that was the thing that sort of offended a lot of people with the Fonterra um, uh emissions pro, uh, program this week where it basically took away the individuality of any su supplier. You, you can't have, let's say, high emissions animals, high emissions farming, and say we want to sell our milk somewhere else. We don't want to sell it to to um, the supposed high-paying um, market that Fonterra decides is where they'll sell it to. So all that sort of was taken away. Uh, and they're trying to make you peas in a pod. They're trying to clone you. and I. I just despair about this um, this cloning of farmers. I mean, yeah. I we always talk about the evolution of ideas, and but but let people pick them up. Value propositions. Yep. Uh, and of their own volition, of their own free will. This coercive way of doing it um, just annoys me. And, of course, you have just played a little snippet out of the banking um, alliance uh, sort of philosophy, part of, part of the UN convened. Um, banking alliance i mean it's it's not the un that's actually doing it it's the banks that are actually saying yes we can yes master um, tell us how yes, much master. yeah exactly and so just every one of these things puts the big squeeze on more and more and i don't know why farmers and businesses aren't saying no we're not doing any more because i there's no way anyone's ever proved that you're getting more for your milk by ticking these boxes and meeting these credentials. Yeah, let Everyone's... them dollarize, let them dollarize uh, the premium, if any, sure, you know. And sure. so far, over these years, all mm. we've seen is costs being pushed up constantly. If you don't do this, you will not be able to access markets. You have to be shut oh. out from markets. Now the threat is going to be you're going to be shut out from funding streams. You're yeah. going to not get an overdraft and you might just have to, you know, uh, but, walk away. But all these people telling us that are all getting their wage check or their bonus. At the same time, the farmer is getting the residue of what is left. The farmers are only the residue receiver, and yet they get 100% of the blame for using the environment. Think about who is really using the environment in this equation. It, yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in a big way, it is not the farmer themselves. It is everybody in that supposed value chain sucking at the droplet of milk. But the farmer gets 100% of the blame. Anyway, hey, I that's a standard rant from me, isn't it? But, but <laughs> we, as, as someone, a, an old politician said to me, Don, you've got to stay on message in volume over time. So maybe that's what I'm doing. I know. And maybe, uh, just before we move on to our guests, there's a couple of uh, feedbacks here. 
One was, it says, brilliant discussion, and this is a referring to, we had Margaret Byfield here from the American Stewards of Liberty, and she said a similar constitution, the U.S. needs to be placed here in New Zealand, one that protects people from the government. And I couldn't agree more. There's Bonnie, whose message is saying we don't need, really have to worry about sea levels because every time we have an earthquake, country rises up out of the sea, keep up the great work. And there is a salute to Dawn's uh, wordsmithery here. Huh. Book, Waste of Kiwi Enterprise. Great acronym, Dawn. I am enjoying the show as usual. Say hi to Josh Pete. Keep up the good work, Alvin. Yeah, Thank he's a you. good. I, I know Elvin. He's a good bloke, a good southern man. <laughs> okay, excellent. So, uh, Don, would you announce our guest for today? Yeah, look. Uh, after the break, we're going to hear uh, from Dr. Yap Honekamp, and he's a um, chemist uh, from the Netherlands, uh, a theologian as well. But he's he really posits the need to have a quizzical mind, and he constantly has a refrain but is this true so yeah having an, an inquiring mind is what he's uh pretty much on to and of course we talked about how the dutch farmers are um feeling being squeezed being squeezed like uh with perhaps a bit of misinformation around nitrates and and, and nitrous oxide and the likes and, and the like and of course and after that um to put a bit of balance in uh the start of this uh discussion today around SESP 8.5 and 8 to 8.5 around sea level rise. We have a Dr. Willem DeLonghi from Waikato University and Barrister Sean Rush joining us to actually give us a 101 on what actually does happen around the coastal margin. Um, yep. And it's not all about sea level rise. Yep, it there's, can a, be, there's it a lot can more. A land, land movement rise. There's a whole lot of things. So yeah, sit back and uh, uh, look forward to those two guests. Absolutely. Thank you so three, much for joining. Three guests. Three guests, yes. actually. Three guests and two yeah. interviews. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. 2057 is our number. If you want to send us a text or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. We'll be back in a moment. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back, listeners, to Reality Check uh, Radio and Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And it's great to have your company as usual. And keep that feedback coming in at uh, 2057 via text or email at realitycheck.radio. And it's not often that uh, you come across names that you say, I've instantly got to get this person on your show or on a show. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I happened upon a name and I thought, hmm, looks very interesting. I sort of did a bit of a study on uh, on the internet and thought, yeah, we'll come across this guy, but I won't push it. We'll just wait a bit. And then lo and behold, uh, I came across the No Farmers, No Food by Roman 
uh, Balmakov from Epoch Times. And this gentleman's featured in that uh, that that documentary again. So I thought, got to get him, got to nail him now while it's hot. So it's our pleasure to have on um, RCR Greenwash today, Dr. Yarp Honekamp uh, from the Netherlands. Um, I think uh, living in or working from The Hague right now, but um, a chemist and a philosopher. Uh, gosh, your list of um, attributes is long, but the thing that, I, that captured me, uh, um, if I can call you Yarp, is sure. yeah, your, your, your your curious mind and the reason you you query uh but is this true but is this true and i just in terms of the sciences i dare say but engineering or anything that we're told today it's not asked nearly enough so where do we start but is this true one thing that we've highlighted um or found highlighted on your blogs is the nitrogen story in the netherlands which is much talked about over here where can we start on that yeah sure 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 the nitrogen story in the netherlands is is, is quite old um we started measuring uh, ammonia and all sorts of other nitrogen uh emissions uh, since 1989-1990 roughly uh, a lot of data around, uh, but reverting back to the, the the question, but is this true? Um, this sort of fundamental to any any academic, uh, no matter how fundamental an issue is. Uh, and this this is where chemistry. I'm a chemist by trade. Uh, famous for is going back to the old school ideas we have, and then think, hmm, is this actually true? What we're teaching the kids over the past eighty years, and I have many examples, many stories to tell about the most fundamental issues being sort of uh, um, uh, rechecked again, just for the sake of yeah, hang on a minute, we, we believe this to be true, but mm, no, we're not quite sure about this. And that's what I like about chemistry is brutally empirical. Uh, we don't think we don't take things for granted very easily. That's sort of the the hardcore chemist approach. Is um, yeah, not sure about that. Let's have a check. Yeah, well, we've done this eighty years ago. It doesn't matter. We still have to check it. Um, and I sort of apply that uh, that idea, which is very fundamental, I think, to academics anyway, to uh, the nitrogen issue. Just out of curiosity, basically, what is going on here? What, what is exactly moving about in the Netherlands and the rest of the world, I gather? Um, and I was sort of shocked by the... First off, I was shocked by the sloppiness of all that. Now, before I go into that in detail, uh, the first thing you have to keep in mind is we have to do agriculture somewhere in the world. Just for the yeah. sake of argument, I don't really care where you do agriculture. Don't care. I do care, but just for the sake of argument, just stick to that point. Um, so, yeah, we have 9 billion people roughly in the world, 8 billion, not sure how, much, how many we have. Um, uh, and so we have to feed these people. That's sort of a basic idea about agriculture. Um, and that means, by definition, that you have some kind of nitrogen emission to the environment, which you don't want. You want to optimize as much as you can, but there is still some emission going on there which you can't really, you can only do so much to prevent that. And no farmer thinks that's a great idea, just pump nitrogen into the atmosphere or in the soil and just simply lose it. That would be a very daft idea. Um, but you have to keep in mind, that's sort of the collateral surroundings of agriculture. That's the way it is. And the question then, of course, is, is not how much damage does it do, if at all, but the question is, what's the trade-off? You have to put everything into perspective of a trade-off. 
If you do this, you get something back. For instance, food, for instance, uh, work, for instance, money. You can, you can sort of stick on every kind of parameter, but there's always a trade-off somewhere, and there are multiple trade-offs. And I do risk assessment for a living now. And what I'm totally surprised by that we, in the Netherlands and the rest of the world, we don't do a trade-off analysis. We simply state nitrogen is bad for the environment. Therefore, we should, in the Netherlands at least, we should reduce the agricultural output because of nitrogen is bad. Now, that might be true, don't get me wrong, but what I'm looking for then is, what is the trade-off analysis? What kind of analysis did you do? Did you do to sort of come to that conclusion? Answer none whatsoever. And I can state that with absolute clarity. There's no trade-off analysis being done. We simply state something. And then, of course, uh, the question is, we should do something. It's like I've, I've uncovered a risk. And by uncovering the risk, I have to do something. And any risk assessor will say, no, you don't because there is always something else going on. It's, it's the same, should I uh, go bet on, on, a, on a dice throw because I know the, the risk of, or, or the benefit of, of um, throwing a six or a one. I know everything about the model die. No, you don't. I know everything about a die, but that doesn't mean I have to then bet on money, my money on throwing a die. That's, that's just plain silly. But the idea is I have uncovered a risk, therefore I should tackle it. My answer is always, no, you don't. Because the next question is, what's the trade-offs we're dealing with? Mm. And, and you know, um, you talk about the pre precautionary uh, culture. Um, we yeah. have a, a, a top... A, we we call it the precautionary principle over here, and it used to be it used to be um, usefully deployed, but now uh, what what I'm observing and Jasper, I hope you back me up here is that the precautionary principle is let's stop everything and let's make it really hard uh, because we don't want to do this stuff anymore. That's about how it is. So what I've just learned from you is um, what I used to hear was the term trade offs. When I was first in pharma politics, we always talked about the trade off. We never sure. talk about it now. So do any of the farming organisations, and you seem to have plenty of them in, in Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, um, do they talk about trade-offs or are they just feeling that bitten by the regulator that they are just coming out all guns blazing and saying no? Um, well, that's that's hard to say because, uh, funny enough, I don't really talk that much to farmers and organizations, <laughs> and, and that's for good reason also. Uh, one, they sure. don't call me very often, which is fine. Secondly, um, I'm not I'm not a person who sort of stands uh, on, on the barricades for the farmers themselves. That's not my position, and yeah. I now want to. Um, but things have changed because in the Netherlands, because usually farmers farmers are very, very independent people. Uh, as far as I know them well enough. And that's a great asset, and that's also a great problem uh, because most farmers want to do things by themselves uh, on their own terms. And that's, again, a great uh, trait. But in this particular case, it doesn't work out very well for a very simple reason is because governments in the world are well aware of how they can sort of play farmers uh, against each other. Um, that's how regulators do that. Um, um, and in others, we've learned that you have to organize uh, on a pretty high level in order to sort of 
counter all the policies which come out of The Hague. And that's been happening the past couple of years. Uh, and, and, and for one reason, I worked together with my, my good friend and colleague, Geisha Rothers, which is a journalist, a very smart woman who knows exactly what's going on in this whole policy department, so to speak. Um, um, we have sort of, whenever we say something about the whole policy thing and nitrogen and, 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 um, and agriculture, uh, people listen. Um, I have my own blog. Um, I've, I've written yep. dozens of, of um, uh, uh, peer-reviewed papers, and I got a bit tired and bored by them because who reads them anyway? Um, it's only academic CV building, and that's slightly boring. Uh, although I do like to publish stuff on my own terms in terms of being uh, brutally honest about certain subjects, but that's that's hard to do nowadays in the peer review world, I'm afraid. So I started to do blogging just to put out my ideas. Again, um, still being trying to be precise, still trying to be uh, focused on the different topics I'm interested in. And to my utter surprise, people read it and people listen. So that works. That works out quite well, actually, surprisingly enough. Well, your your blog is prolific and um, it's easily read. And for, for the layman like me, uh, I find it fantastic. Interestingly, we do have problems with the peer review concept in New Zealand as well. Uh, we have um, some scientists from America that are well-known, uh, physicists uh, who have been trying to get their, oh, we've been trying to get their documents read in New Zealand, the, the, the William Happer and William Van Weingarten. And yeah. they talk about methane and nitrous oxide being irrelevant in terms of the scheme of things, in terms of global warming. They're, they're so minuscule that it's irrelevant. Try to get that through New Zealand. Uh, um, administration is quite difficult. Sure, the 2019 paper they put out was not peer-reviewed, but they've put out papers since that have been, and yet they're completely ignored by the mainstream here. And so I've come across a, another uh um, sort of peer review concept called archive, which seems to be used by. Yeah, yeah. Um, we use that as well. Uh, I use this as well. But but I think the problem is that too many scientists or too many farmers organizations try to sort of get the attention of politics. And I think that's completely beside the point. It's uninteresting for many different reasons. For one reason is the first thing you have to do is state your claims about the position you want to you want to sort of express. And whether or not people listen or read it, that's beside the point. The point, the first point is make clear what you want to say about the situation you're in and repeat that and, and bolster that position and strengthen it, but also critique it. If you think, well, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought this, mm, um, I think I should change my position because it's not solid enough. It has, it has cracks. Um, be honest about what you do. Um, um, that's the whole idea about science is that you can change your mind for very, very good reasons. So that's another thing. And it's not trying to, to press the government or policymakers. Hey, listen to me. I have great news to tell you. They don't care. And that's what I've, I've experienced. Nobody cares what I have to say if I want to bring across my message. I'll write it anyway. And to my utter surprise, people start to pay attention. Not because I'm shouting from the barricades, listen to me, I'm important. No, I'm not important, but I have something to say and I write it up. I have my own blog. I just write whatever I want. And 
to my utter surprise, people read it and start to take notice. And I think that's important. Don't try to convince the opponent, so to speak, because that's a that's a useless approach because they won't be uh, um, they won't they won't change your mind because they have their own vision of the world. Now that's part of the philosophical uh, work I've been doing as well because. Uh, I tried to understand it for many years, and um, once I've written my second PhD uh, in theology and philosophy about precautionary culture, um, mm. I started to realize, then I started to understand why people won't listen. And that has a very specific history, has nothing to do with proper science or peer review, has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the utopian uh, as Eric Vogelin says, the second reality world in which policymakers live, and they live in a different world than you and I do. And that's the that's the rub. That's why people won't listen to you. Yeah, and that's what we've seen in the last three years, especially you know when COVID began and the whole nonsense began. The reason it got perpetuated for so long, it seems to me, rather than going back and saying, "Hey, some of these things are not making sense," they just went harder. And harder and harder. And after after a time, I realized this is not about logic anymore. Because in the beginning, a few of us were talking about, hey, the science doesn't add up. Hey, this doesn't make sense. But soon you realize they don't care. The ideologues no. just don't care. Well, it's not just a question of ideologues, because that can be a, a sort of a swear word, something like that. <laughs> it's more like they live literally in a different world. And I think Eric Vogelin described this best as a second reality, as a fantasy world. But fantasy is not a derogatory term. He means it more precisely than that. It's it's a world uh, um, policymakers envision themselves to create in the real world. The problem then, of course, is that you have to destroy the real world and get to the in, in order to get to the fantasy world. But the result is always, as in always, that you simply the only thing you do is you destroy the world you live in. That's it. You don't create the fantasy world. You have envisioned yourself, which he calls the second reality. You just you just destroy everything around you. But within the vision of this better world, um, you destroy the world in the meantime. And there is nothing uh, replaced uh, at all. It's just being destroyed. And I think Vogelin in the 1940s, 30s already, in the 40s and 50s, saw that quite clearly. My big uh, hero, which is called Michael Polanyi, a very famous chemist, very famous uh, uh, philosopher, also um, pointed this out, that if you're not connecting to the real world, if you are not aware of that you can actually connect with the real world in science, for instance, then you have a major problem on your hands. And he, he actually predicted the fall of communist Russia based on, on those ideas he had mm. way, way before the Russian, um, uh, um, the communist Russian world collapsed. And that has to do with particularly that, that there is a new world created in the minds of people, which is unrelated to the world we live in. That's why you see these hilarious and dangerous ideas about how to reshape agriculture. It has nothing to do with the real world. No. And that's why science or peer review or look at me, I'm shouting truth to you. It's all pointless. The only, the only thing you can do is state your claim. Show what you're made of. That's it. And if people listen or not, that's out of your hands. You don't have to try that. 
It's interesting. Um, you've just repeated a line that I wrote down before recording this, um, and it was from Victor Davis Hanson, and he said, academic mind always has the answers, but not in the real world. I thought he was being a bit harsh, but there's some similarity to what you've just oh, said. Uh, there's well-known philosophical work being uh, having been done on that, and it's, it's, it's precisely right. And he probably inferred to Eric Vogelin specifically, but also Michael Polanyi is another example, which are very famous people exactly showed that problem to the world, but very few people listened. Um, and you, you can go even further back in history, talk about Gnosticism and, and the, the wisdom, um, uh, the mystery religions from way back when, uh, which Vogelin uh, um, very much talked about. But we don't have to. You can simply, um, the first thing I teach my students, don't think, look, just look around you. Just try to observe what you see. I sometimes use the, the following example. If you and I would walk to a certain forest in the Netherlands or somewhere else, and it's it's dusk, uh, the, the, the sun is slowly setting, and you see some foxes running and some deer. It's a gorgeous sight. And I'm a, I'm a pessimist and you're an optimist. And you say, oh, it's a beautiful sight, great forest, all the, the, the autumn colors and stuff. I would say, no, 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 you're wrong. I see a dying ecology. Mm. Now, that's the difference. Those people who say, I'm seeing a dying ecology, don't really look. They just state what they think they see, but they don't really look. They don't really observe. And that's what's been going on the past 30, 40 years is this apocalyptic mindset about the end of the world, which is very old, by the way. There's nothing new about it, but it's very old. And I'm a theologian as well, so I'm well aware of what, where these stories come from. Um, but one, the, the first thing that starts is that don't people, people do not look. They just are stuck in their mindset. And for science, that's the absolute worst because they're probably the worst scientists, because they are not capable of observing, of looking. No, no. And, you know, many a times uh, I've had someone say, but if it was a lie, you know, if they are lying, it would be out by now. And I would say they don't actually believe they are lying. They are of that mindset and they believe every word that comes out of your mouth. I'm also old enough to remember when science, you know, in junior school, being taught the scientific method and skepticism, and that's what the scientific method involves. Whereas now, you seem to extrapolate from a position of saying emissions are bad. Farming causes emissions. Farming is bad. End of story. Yeah, it's a very silly, deductive kind of reasoning, but, which um, are, is not sound at all. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's not looking. It's not really looking at all. It's just... Um, and there is another thing, I, I think, which is related to this, is um, uh, what Ulrich Beck did in the 1980s um and it's an interesting claim he makes and i think he's right about that is if you move from scarcity scarcity in food health um, um shelter um and all sorts of other um uh, basic human needs if you move away from that and which we did oh. we have abundance on many different levels uh his point was well the moment we leave that kind of classical scarcity behind we have a new we have new fears and those fears are not short term these fears are long term because we get older we are healthier um uh, we have enough food we have enough shelter we have enough money whatever we want we have 
But there are other risks at the horizon which are further away, and that's radiation. He was very worried about Chernobyl, for instance, which is not it's which is a which is not wrong, but he stated also we can't trust our uh, uh, our, our, our senses anymore. We can't trust our eyes or is because we can't smell radiation. We can't see it and it's dangerous. We can't smell and see the chemicals from the industry and our food. So he created this, this, this fearful world, which is called, which he called, uh, das Risiko Gesellschaft, the risk culture, the risk society in which the trouble was not scarcity. The trouble was, uh, the inequality in, in terms of risk distribution. And, and, and well, he has a point in, in the sense of, yes, we are beyond scarcity, but he was wrong about the idea that we have, we have increased our risk environment. That's absolutely, that's blatantly false. Um, and of course, the whole idea, you can't trust your senses anymore, ties into the, to the fear of, we sort of developed in ourselves about the end of um, of the world because of uh, pesticides, for instance, like Rachel Carson did in 1962, Silent Spring. Um, and of course, then we had the Club of Rome, uh, Limits to Growth, and we had this beautiful UN report um, about um, um, we have we should have a global society with a global government for which everything would be great. And these were real reports. These were, these were reports published in the 1970s, which actually uh, rung a bell with especially those who thought that agriculture was uh, sort of the worst thing that ever happened to the world. Um, so we have this whole romantic setting, this technological setting, this risk society setting uh, in which we live nowadays. And people refuse to properly look um, uh, beyond those borders of that particular world. And we're aware of um, those sort of um, uh, documents that came out over time, probably from from over 100 years ago, even right through the Club of Rome to the United Nations agendas and now the WEF um, edicts. Uh, you know, we're told in this country they're non-binding. There's nothing to see here. But they're all pervasive. They're all around us. The, the ethos that uh, emanates from those documents seems to be being used without authority in all our institutions um is that is that happening in in the netherlands i think it's happening all over the world i mean um, um don't get me wrong i'm not so much interested in all these 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 documents mm. because it's usually uh the classical utopian claptrap you see everywhere mm. which mm. which we have been writing about since the 1600s yes. i've read utopia by thomas more and every single a book like uh, Sun City by Campanella and, and Jeremy Bentham and all these these great uh, um, uh, literary people, every single document which is has this utopian structure, which is called the utopian dialectic, dystopia, utopia. Um, you see again in uh, in in these documents from um, from the World Economic Forum. They're actually quite boring, um, and they're very, very um, uh, structured along the same lines we've seen for the past five, six hundred years about we need to get from A to B because A is terrible and B is much better. And um, the darker you sketch A, the better B gets. And that's very old school. So if you, um, a friend of mine, a um, historian, and I um, read the Club of Rome reports, Glimmers to Growth, not as a technical paper, but as a utopian product. And it was eye-opening. It has nothing to do with science. It has to do with 
the better worldview of utopia versus we're going to all going to die because of the limits to growth we observe because our world model one and two and three point out we are going to destroy ourselves if we keep growing economically like we do. But that was classical utopian. And we've written a paper about 2005 about this whole precautionary idea and the limits of growth is pure unadulterated utopian um, um, uh, um, claptrap. It was it was brilliant. It changed my perspective on all these papers and documents from all these organizations. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's as good. Yeah, that if we come to more to the real world now and looking at your blog and listeners, Yap's blog is just yaphandcamp.com. You talk about the Dutch nitrogen illusion. Yes. And I've also gone through your, uh, you know, extensive output on how you think the is that how you pronounce it the aureus modeling tool that, Arius, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that the way okay. it, it is used so tell us a bit more because we many of our listeners would be rural farmers there would be keen to hear about yeah what's happening in the nitrogen front okay in Holland. okay um the first thing you have to realize once we started sort of monitoring uh nitrogen emissions from many different sources but agriculture was one of them um, um and of course we have a large agricultural output so that made sense in a sort of case. Oh. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure, it makes sense. Um, there are a number of things being done. Uh, measuring um, um, actual concentration in the atmosphere, mm. which is great. It's just empirical work. Uh, with, with the uncertainties involved, obviously, but that's fine. Um, and how much nitrogen was deposited um, uh, close and far away. Now, um, keep in mind, measuring ammonia is difficult. But also, if you would really want to know how much deposited in the Netherlands uh, from the atmosphere uh, concerning ammonia, you have to have thousands and thousands of measuring points. Because ammonia reacts and, and, and it, it deposits, it goes up in the atmosphere, it does all sorts of things. Um, a friend of mine once said, as a professor, and was a professor in Delta, um, nitrogen is interesting because you can really lie about nitrogen. And he, he, me he meant that chemically. Because nitrogen can do so many different things, especially reactive nitrogen. It's very hard to track. It's very hard to follow. And uh, that's why I said you can you can lie openly about nitrogen because very few we don't really know all the details about that. And that's yeah, that's true. Now, measuring um, atmospheric measuring is hard enough as it is. Also, um, um, if you really want to measure precisely how much ammonia is and, and, and ammonium is in the atmosphere, you have to measure quite a bit and, and all, all sorts of different locations. That's impossible. Um, it's way too expensive and beyond the capability of any country in the world to do that. Okay. Um, the next step is try to model something. Okay, we try to model transport of ammonia from sources. Makes perfect sense. Modeling is great. Uh, um, um, because it's sort of a solution to a problem you can't solve via the empirical uh, route. Okay, makes sense. You model. Um, you would like to be the, for the model to be precise as much as you can. And keep in mind, modeling is always a reduction of reality. Uh, it's hard to do. Um, um, we all have weather apps on our phone, and we know that within the hour, yeah, it's pretty good. But in two weeks, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Um, so modeling has its limitations and that's not a problem. That's okay. If you sort of, uh, keep that in your mind, um, 
Then um, uh, the Dutch Institute of, of Environment and Health came out with a model called OPS. OPS is sort of a, a, a model which calculates um, transports of, uh, of certain emissions from certain um, um, economic activities. Um, that model actually has been used now for the past 30 years, which is now uh, we have a shell around it called ARIES, and ARIES is sort of you still uses this program from the 1990s, 1980s, which is called OPS, um, uh, which tries to calculate uh, the transport and the deposition in the end of, in this case, let's take just ammonia um, and, and try to see where everything goes and, and what's happening with ammonia from all these farms in the Netherlands. Now the problem starts because the moment we decided to make it a policy instrument, things went down the drain because yeah. modelers are well aware of the fact that there is a huge imprecision in modeling. And again, that's okay. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. You can optimize, you can do as much as you can, you can do the best you can, can do, but there are limitations. But the moment you think, okay, that's an interesting model, it spits out very precise numbers, that's dangerous in itself. Um, uh, let's make a policy instrument out of this. And then things went down the drain, basically. Uh, because it proved to be the case uh, um, that um, the model can't do anything even remotely precise with respect to specifically one farm emission and deposition of that particular farm emissions of ammonia on that particular uh, nature area. That's what's being done the past couple of decades in the Netherlands, that farmers are actually sort of um, uh, taken on with their ammonia emissions related to the deposition they create from within a couple of hundred yards to hundreds of miles away. Now, wow. we limited that nowadays, but in the old days, it was sort of, you can calculate all the way to Moscow, basically. And, of course, numbers rolled out of the machine, obviously. But, of course, very few regulators understood that that's completely meaningless with these what this uh, program did. Nowadays, we've limited this, this range of emissions, which makes sense up to a certain point. Um, um, uh, but we proved that the whole model doesn't work. It simply is, is a useless model. I mean, useless in the sense of policymaking, not useless in the sense of can you do science with it? Yes, you can. Yep. Um, but it's a big story, so I'm not even done yet, but please interrupt. Yeah, otherwise, so that, so that means, you know, you're making real-world decisions based on these models, of which you know that there is, there is trouble. I mean, Holland, you've uh, had a policy, I believe, of reducing yes. your uh, speed limits from 100 miles per hour to 80 miles per hour. Well, kilometers. All, yeah. kilometers. That's kilometers. two miles, because that's okay. great. We, don't, we don't have race tracks. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. That, that's yeah. an interesting so that's, point. That's yeah. a real-world Yes. application of this modeling which has its limitations so that's when the issue arises that's a good point because i was also a member of a of a cabinet um, advisory board uh called the office collation maintenance and breaking and stickstoff so it's advisory board about measuring and calculating nitrogen that was the name of the whole thing and uh, we had lots of discussion with the rivm which owns the model and we talked about this um hmm. Um, because I don't care about the speed limit per se. That's neither here nor there. Yep. But what I do care about is if you make a decision, if you go from 130 kilometers an hour to 100 kilometers, because there is less 
uh, deposition of nitrogen from cars, then I would like to know how precise is that calculation in the first place? Well, it didn't make any sense at all because the, the model is simply incapable of, of, of modeling that. Yeah. And, we, and we discussed this um, because my response would be, if a minister asks you that, I would kick her out of the organization because the, the simple answer would be, we have no idea what that would do with respect to deposition. And keep in mind, it's a whole causal chain of events, driving cars, emissions, transport, deposition, and change in nature. That's the whole causal chain of events, which is beyond far, far, far beyond our capabilities to even model uh, in the first place. But nevertheless, this whole causal chain was sort of pinpointed with so many... Yeah, if so this happens, moments. this will happen. And this happens, and this happens. Yeah. It's complete yeah. rubbish. It's complete nonsense. And if I would be the RIVM director, I would say, I'm sorry, Minister, we can't help you here. And this is far beyond our capabilities. A but no, they decided to do the calculations and then say, okay, it's about one <laughs> mole difference between the one and the other. It's completely irrelevant. It's completely nonsense. <laughs> And people actually regarded it as real. And that's that's where the trouble starts. If you are incapable of sort of understanding what's going on, you think that this is a real-world result. Well, it isn't. It's just made up. It's literally almost a a bullshit a, a generator in, in this in this particular. And of course, there's a famous book by a famous philosopher, which I advise everyone to read because it's very easy to read, Harry Frankfurt. The famous philosopher died this year, and the book is called On Bullshit. And it's a serious, serious essay on lying, truth, and bullshit. And he, he made a great point is that we live in a bullshit culture, which we just make stuff up out of nowhere with no regard of lying or truth. And I, I always say everyone should read this essay. It's simple, 70 pages, easy to read, go for it. <laughs> oh, we might have to do a page a week, Jasper, in the show, or two pages, or a chapter. Who knows? Um, <laughs> of course, of course, all, all this sort of stuff. If it gets to a tipping point, the tipping point, uh, you can't have any more nitrogen uh, deposition because there'll be a tipping point, or you can't have another part of a degree because there'll be a tipping point uh, for for climate catastrophe. None of these tipping points have ever. Uh, as I understand it, uh, been met. So, and ju just before you answer that, um, could you clarify for me, because I'm, I'm a, not just getting this clearly, we talk about nitrous oxide, nitrates, NO3, and we're talking about ammonia, NH3, aren't we? So N2O, NO3, and NH3. And NH4+, plus because ammonia, uh, at the moment, ammonia goes to the atmosphere, it reacts with water, right. reacts with salt, and you get NH4+, plus, which is the, the, the quaternary ammonium salt of ammonia. Right. In New Zealand, uh, I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners here, because uh, we sort of talk about nitrous oxide emissions from animals and fertilizer use, uh, but nitrates are what uh, we're sort of thinking leach through the soil profile into the water. Um, yeah. So, hey, as long as we had that clarity, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your next train of thought, which you're on fire. So let's let's carry on on this <laughs> uh, on this topic. Um, what next, though? Uh, you know, you, what we're seeing in, in Ireland as well. They're talking about the, the depositions, and no doubt it's happening in Belgium and, and other countries nearby. Yes. Um, the farmers are sort of being told that uh, they have to 
meet these new criteria or and in fact uh there's an attempt to buy out uh 3000 farms in the Netherlands which seems one hell of a lot of farms um for what end for what end and if you seem to be saying to me or to us uh the end game doesn't fit the criteria to get there just doesn't doesn't make sense the, the 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 presentation the idea is that we have to save nature because of too much nitrogen that's a simple story now everyone knows that if you add nitrogen to an ecosystem the ecosystem starts to grow and starts to change that's why your farmers use nitrogen obviously i mean that's 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 um, um my my foster kids would say yeah that's a high duh level um <laughs> now, the, 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 the simple idea is this, that if more nitrogen meets, meets, means more ecological change, and that means deterioration of ecology, and that means we have to stop that. That's a very linear causal chain of events. Mm. Now, obviously, um, um, the quality of nature can be determined in many different ways and is impacted in many different ways. For instance, in the Netherlands, let's keep let's stick to the Netherlands because I'm, I'm the most familiar with that. Is that, for instance, the groundwater status is quite important in relation to eco- uh, ecological quality, because we have loads of groundwater. We sort of basically drown in the Netherlands. We have to pump out loads of water to stay dry and stuff like that. So groundwater levels are are quite important for ecological status of of all sorts of nature areas. That's one. But there are many pressure factors you can. Uh, measure and you can weigh in in determining the quality of ecological s- systems. I think the European Commission has, has decided in their habitat re- regulation there are about 300 of them. Okay, whatever, it's fine. And here's the rub. In the Netherlands, we decided to um, uh, relate ecological quality only to nitrogen deposition which is complete BS, it's complete nonsense. Uh, um, I made a very simple, and I blocked about this, a very simple um, um, comparison between Germany and the Netherlands on the border, on the borderline. We have um, a large heather area, beautiful, purple, great. Um, and we, we looked at what the German assessment was of their own habitat, uh, heather habitat, and the Dutch. And the Germans said, great, great prospect, it's doing great. Um, we looked at all these different pressure factors. And, and keep in mind, by the way, uh, there is no difference in, in, in farm density between the Germans and the, and, and the Netherlands in that particular area, because it's very close by. If you walk there, you can't even see the, uh, the borderline. You just walk into Germany, back into the Netherlands. Who cares? And uh, we did care about that a couple of years ago, but not anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, um, then I looked at the Dutch assessment and it said oh it's this heather is, is dying so uh, exactly at the border the german said it's green it's fantastic and the dutch said no 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 we're this heather system is dying why well it's a question of assessment it's very simple again we come to the fantasy world of ecologists and modelers we only look at nitrogen deposition which is exactly the same on the german side the dutch is no difference but the german decided as germans do to be precise about it and look at all these different pressures on on ecosystems said well we have all these different pressure parameters but all on the whole this is doing great and this is how officially by the way the european commission decided to for all countries to do by the way 
We decided in the Netherlands to do it differently. We don't follow the, the, the Brussels rules. You can, obviously, you can go your own way. That's all fine and well. And we decided to, to uh, look only or mostly at nitrogen deposition. And then state, oh, this is a dying ecosystem because it's nit- too much nitrogen around. Keep in mind that too much nitrogen is models. Keep that in mind. It's models. It's not measured because measuring deposition of nitrogen, uh, NOx or ammonia, ammonium is very difficult to do. It's a very hard thing to do. And this is not trying to be easy on scientists. It is hard to do. Um, So the model world in the Netherlands said this ecosystem is dying in the German world, which is much more empirical, took all these pressure parameters into account, said, no, we're doing fine. And that's exactly the problem in a nutshell. If you only look at nitrogen, you have a tunnel vision of the world. Um, and yeah, we have a large agricultural um, um, industry, and that means lots of nitrogen emissions. That's sort of part of the package deal. And that has that has consequences. Of course it has. I'm not saying it doesn't. But again, we're talking about trade-offs, trade-offs. and we're talking about parameters. And by the way, this is interesting. The Netherlands does deliver this so-called... Um, state of maintaining uh, ecosystem analyses. We do deliver those to Brussels. And guess what? We're doing just fine on the parameters uh, Brussels asks from us. But that's sort of not common knowledge. Nobody knows about that because these these reports are sort of in a desk drawer somewhere in Brussels and we don't look at them. We only focus on nitrogen. And that's the story in a nutshell. Meanwhile, here uh, in New Zealand, yeah, we have, I mean, milk, milk producers controlling a third uh, of the international milk production via a co-op Fonterra. Now, the New Zealand milk's carbon footprint is less than a third of the world's average and close to 30% less than most of our European counterparts. Yet, we are told you need to do better. Your product won't be exported. And I come back to the point, you know, efficiency is trade-offs. It's like telling Someone like me, I am not particularly athletic. If you tell me to, you know, clean up my act, there's a lot of scope for improvement. Yet, if you go to a world-class Olympic sprinter, the one who's at the very top of his game, and tell the person, you need to maximize, it will be very hard because that person is at the very top. And to improve there is virtually at some stages impossible. But that's what we are being told to do here in New Zealand. And just being wrapped and tied into all of these... uh, not at the same time, we are being told that the same companies that are troubling, you know, that are saying that New Zealand milk is not good, good enough, are happy enough to collect uh, and transform milk into products in, say, my motherland of India. There's absolutely no problem. Nestle and others have no issues. But for New yeah. Zealand, they have issues. And this stupidity, oh. I cannot understand. I cannot well, explain it's not stupidity. it. It's, it's just a power play. It's, it's a simple power play. It's nothing to do with environmental degradation and stuff. It's just a simple power play. It's, again, uh, uh, trying to force the market in the direction you want. It's sort of trying to struggle for power. Um, um, and keep in mind, farmers are always at the, at the, at the wrong end of the stick historically. Mm. Go back in history in France, the Netherlands, England, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, farmers are all, I have no idea why that is. It must have been some kind of cultural or hierarchy or nobility versus um, the hoi polloi. And 
I don't know, but farmers are always at the wrong end of the stick everywhere in the world. And that is still the same today. And um, uh, now we can use science to mm-hmm. hit people over the head. But that's nothing to do with science. It's called scientism. That's the philosophy mm. of that science can do anything. It's just blunt ideology. It's nothing to do with science. And that's what I've seen in the whole nitrogen topic in the Netherlands is pure and unadulterated scientism. The classical idea that we, with science, we can do anything and measure anything and understand everything. It's complete bogus, complete nonsense. But that's what we do. We try to devise a thermostat, which is called nitrogen. Less nitrogen is more nature. More nitrogen is less nature. That's that's the the simple causal chain of events, which has no um, um, reality worth whatsoever. But that's what we do. And that's the power play we're in. And I think the farmers, to put it bluntly, should stick to their guns, not in, not in terms of trying to convince others because that's pointless. It won't work. But to yeah. to be the best in their game, I mean, there's always room for improvements. There's always room for research. Absolutely. Go for it. Improve where you can. Improve. But again, there's always a trade-off, um, uh, loads of trade-offs. And, and you can do only so much in terms of research, in terms of, of investments, in terms of, of, um, of uh, liberating people to do the research. There's always limitations to what you can do. Uh, as every good chemist can tell you, uh, who has improved processes in the chemical industry, um, but there's always room to improve, but there's also a limitation to that. And in the end, food production is a reality we need uh, beyond anything else, um, apart from the, uh, the spiritual side of life, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, th- there you have it. And farmers can actually do that. That's what my experience in the Netherlands is. Farmers can do that. Hmm. So, so um, it's it's interesting your take on it. I mean, we've spent uh, twenty years in New Zealand or thereabouts trying to find a way to limit uh, methane emissions from animals. We think uh, back of the envelope, we've probably spent three hundred million, probably heading towards seven hundred million dollars to find this uh, silver bullet. Um, it seems to be some aspiration that a lot of our scientists um, um, would like to get to and uh, see their careers off, um, having worked in that field forever. It could just be pie in the sky, who knows, but uh, that's where we are. So I see similarities with the political aspect of what you've just explained, how, how politicians take stuff up and use it to sort of put the wedge in against a certain sector of society. And that seems to be what's happening in the Netherlands with the nitrogen depositions. And it's certainly happening here with regard to greenhouse gas emissions. But what I want to go on to, uh, we've got perhaps a quarter of an hour left, uh, is your your blog, The Wizard of DeBilt or the Climate Scenarios of the KMMI. (laughs) And I read that, and Jaspreet and I have talked about this. We've only been going seven months, but we've talked about this many times, the RCPs and the SSPs. Yeah. And and how overblown they are in this country, and yet they're still used. We're still using eight point five in our. Uh, yeah. Well, J- Jasper is a councillor, and they're still using eight point five in their council, which just beggars belief. So, how do you? What have What have you done here? What have you? How do you explain the 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 SSP concept? Well, um, um, we can go into detail what the SSP and the RCP concepts are, but that's that's not really interesting at all. It's again. Yeah. It, 
again, it's a question how you look at it. It's not a question of how how exactly these things are constructed, because that's actually not quite interesting at all. It's just it's just storytelling. Now, I don't mind storytelling myself, being a theologian, so to speak, but um, um, stories in the Bible are much more hardcore reality based than the stories you find in scientific papers. Because if you read these RCP and um, the, the, these these scenarios more utopian like, then things start to t- to click. Because I, I just cited one of these five stories, the the more green stories, and it's sort of buzzing with terms like equality and 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 it's all fuzzy, fuddy duddy, very very fuzzy language, and it's classically utopian language. Now, why use the RCP eight point five? Is a very simple has a very simple reason. It's just sheer dystopian threat. Has nothing to do with reality again. So again, I'm 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 trying to 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 sort of show people sort of look the other way is that it's not about science it's not about climate it's about telling a story about the 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 disastrous world we live in and the great world we're moving toward if only we could rid of fossil fuels now keep in mind as a chemist there are many reasons why you would not like to use fossil fuels as we do now and i can go on for this forever why we are terrible at using fossil fuels as we use it now but that's only those are chemical arguments and i won't bother with them right now uh, uh, um, but that's neither here nor there what they're trying to tell us is that this world is terrible and the world we envision as experts i'm i'm almost referring to this world as the expertocracy mm. um, because experts know everything which of course is complete bs but that's pr- probably clear by now they're telling a story about it's it's the utopian dialectic, terrible world now, great world tomorrow. If only you listen to the experts. Now that's what we're seeing here again with these climate scenarios, which makes no sense whatsoever because they use they use um, um, they have the availability bias. Sort of, we have this scenario and that scenario. This is of course a very high scenario. This is a very low scenario. Somewhere in the middle, something's going to happen. That's not true. That's sheer availability bias because the world might develop in a completely different direction, which you have not foreseen. Well, guess what? That's always about the future. You always don't foresee stuff. Again, duh. That's what. That's how the world works. Again, it's a fantasy land, um, but it's a but the fantasy land has consequences. Ideas have consequences. They are not. Language is not innocent, I always say, say to mm-hmm. my students. Language is not innocent. And these scenarios are not innocent BS. They have real-world consequences. World consequences. Absolutely, yep. And uh, for listeners, if someone is unfamiliar, we were talking about RCPs. These are representative concentration pathways, which essentially are models about how much we are going to heat heat up the earth by our very existence and RCP 8.5 is the most catastrophic doomsday scenario referring to something like four to point, four to five degrees of temperature increase. Now, Yap, you were talking about, you know, storytelling and all. And I just found it a sheer coincidence. Our universities here in New Zealand have recently, many of them have begun a degree in science communication. If I may, I'll read out a bit of the blurb from one of these universities, Otago University, about what this course will have. It says, for selling this course to students, a master's in, uh, Mm -hmm. they call it science communication. They say, but storytelling, storytelling at the core of all science 
our focus continues to be creative nonfiction science and natural history writing, but also covers a broad range of practice and applications over multimedia, filmmaking, podcasts, and exhibitions. I think they should have written creative fiction instead of creative nonfiction. But I am again showing my age here, but growing up, I never heard of these degrees or these qualifications of science communication. Science degree was a science degree, pure and simple. You didn't need storytelling, but these days you seem to. Well, I don't mind storytelling per se, because stories can actually tell mm. real world truths. Mm. Absolutely. And for instance, what I try to do in my classes in chemistry, I try to portray uh, difficult technical subjects in more uh, in, in language, they sort of where they sort of meet up with each other. And if you move on through the chemistry course, people are more familiar with the jargon we chemists use. Mm. Uh, the first sense is try to sort of build a world for them where they can sort of inhabit that world without being scared off by all the jargon. So in that sense, I don't mind that very much. Um, but of course, storytelling as sheer fantasy, as sheer, sheer imagination, um, um, which again, Vogelin called the second reality. Now that's a different matter because you fantasize. Yeah. And of course, all these scenarios, uh, um, uh, the economy uses uh, for their climate scenarios as literally fantasy lands. They don't exist and they probably never will. Um, but the sort of, that's the, the problem always in any, in any, uh, field worst case scenarios don't tell us nothing about the world itself. Worst case scenarios seem very a safe route to approach a problem. But of course, the problem then, of course, is that it doesn't give you any kind of useful real world information out about the situation you try to research. Let me give you a very simple example. Uh, this has been a, a going on in toxicology for the longest time. Does it make sense to feed rats high doses of a certain chemical in order to extract information about our own exposure, which is a million times lower than that. Many scientists thought in the old days, yeah, it's probably useful, then at least we know that the liver goes out first and then the kidneys. But nowadays we say, no, doesn't make much sense because the whole physiological processes of getting rid of high levels of chemicals is completely different than the physiology of low level exposure. So there is no connect between the high dose and the low dose in terms of how organisms respond. So by doing the worst case exposure to test animals doesn't give you any useful information. information. At least it's very unlikely that you get very useful information about these worst case scenarios. Now in that world we live in, we created, we, we have spent trillions of dollars on worst case scenario research, which goes nowhere because it doesn't tell you anything about the real world. And I think people should realize that, that these climate scenarios and all the other scenarios are worst case scenarios, which are not connected to the real world. And that's the, that's where we stand nowadays. We, ha we have dragged ourselves into a worst case scenario world. Where no one lives, by the way, no one is there, except for the expertocracy. They look around, oh, this is absolutely dreadful. We have to do something. So that's where we are right now. It, it's interesting because um, I think uh, of your your country and your coastline. Is it called Needle Jan? I'm not sure how to say it. The, the, the big um, sort of... Uh, it's not a dike. Uh, what do you call it across the causeway with the electricity generation 
stopping the tide from coming in and out of yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that, that isthmus. Um, that was done, uh, built long before uh, climate change politics sure. hit, the, hit the world. And so the money was spent on something useful. Now we're spending a lot of money um, chasing um, some sort of uh, fairy tale uh, and not doing the engineering that is required to uh, to adapt to a changing world. It doesn't matter whether it's a climate that's what change we do. or anything. That's, what we've, that's we what we've done for the past. Yeah, past. so... Yeah. Ten thousand years, we adapt to things. Exactly, that's what we do. Yeah, and we we didn't need all the uh, people in suits telling us how to do it uh, generally. But yep. it's interesting going back to your your end of your blog on the RCPs and the eight point five and and this, the Wizard of Oz connection. You say pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's yeah. what the your Met Office wants to make us believe in a magical predictions that the made behind the hermetically sealed curtain of the expertocracy. But it's smoke and mirrors, magic and deception, contempt and power. We've seen it in the nitrogen story that script us with this model dictatorial uh, uh, for for more than 30 years. The climate story is no different. And so I don't know. um, Yeah, I can't believe an hour's gone by. You've captivated uh, the attention of myself and Jaspreet, and you've brought a unique perspective. And I am so grateful we found you because it is a different perspective than we've had. And it's so uh, refreshing. Refreshing. Yes, refreshing. And I I think your students uh, are so lucky to have someone like you. Um, not sure uh, about that. I hope you indoctrinate them well because, boy, we need people. No, uh, no, no. With, that's with exactly the point. I, I always I, say. I, 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 know, no, I know. Whenever they have to write a paper or something, yeah. say, you don't have to humor me. You can take any position you like. <laughs> the only thing I'm asking you is make a good case for it. Absolutely. And, and so- I'm never grading students on completely disagreeing with them, but that would be absolutely silly. I mm. will grade them badly if they just blurt out something they believe without any kind of groundwork being done in terms of evidence. Right. That's awesome. what I do. Deep critical nope. thinking. So, so um, look, we'll, we'll we'll draw this to a close. Um, we'd yep. love to have you back on. We want to know how the Dutch sure. um, uh, uh, get through the next few years. I mean, you've got some political turmoil there. We've yeah, just had we an election have, here. Um, we have elections in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be interesting. Uh, right. But, of course, the election uh, issue is much larger than this. We didn't talk mm. about critical loads and other stuff, and there's so much more to this story than just the model. So, right. uh, so yeah, So, but maybe for another time we, we can do that. Well, that would be fantastic. Look, uh, so in the meantime, thank you very much for coming on to uh, Greenwash Show yep. on Reality Check Radio. You're certainly, as Jasper said, a... Um, a new perspective, and we're thankful for you giving it to us today. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. Have a, good, have a great night. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, and of course, uh, every week we like to bring topical issues to to the fore. And I've just got a copy of my local newspaper in front of me, and it quotes Jaspreet um, at her local council, uh, trying to put the acid on why that council might use a very um, high stakes um, number for its coastal management. And so I thought, because of uh, 
that and you've heard us talk about ECSP and RCPs before in terms of climate change and and the like. Uh, in terms of coastal management, we'd get on to guests today. One, uh, Dr. William DeLonghi, and I know I've got that wrong, Longa, I think it is in its true sense, from Waikato University. And the other one is a former guest that we've had on, um, Sean Rush, Rush, a barrister from Sean Rush Energy and Infrastructure Law Limited. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, so look, this is getting, uh, the heat's coming on in terms of coastal management. It's not a day goes by when I don't see another council's got another report about uh, sea level um, concerns around their, their area. And of course, Jasper, the one I've just quoted is the Southern District Council. I know you're in Capity, Sean, and, uh, and Willem, you've done several assessments around the country over time. So, Willem, tell us and sort of... Um, uh, and I haven't introduced you very well. I know um, I was going to say, perhaps give some of your credentials if you could, and why you're you're overall this topic quite well. Um, um, and give us a one hundred and one. What is the uh, concern here? Okay, um, I've worked in the area of coastal hazards um, since the early eighties, um, and basically I've been in the position at the University of Waikato since nineteen eighty four which coincidentally was the first year that I appeared as an expert witness in a high court case relating to sea level rise. So I've been dealing with this on and off over the years. Um, I'm, I have to say it's not something I enjoy doing going into court. Um, and so I've only been involved in a few high profile cases, um, which I think uh, set precedents are important. So I've always been interested in, in sea level and coastal hazards being a foreigner who was born below sea level in the um, Rhine Delta in Europe on uh, Apolda. Um, and our lives there were ruled by um, high sea levels. And um, my ancestors lived there for uh, 1,400 years building up coastal defences. So I tend to view that um, sea level issues can be managed. My family has done it for a, a very long time. Um, the thing is, is that when we look at sea level, we need to recognise there are two types of sea level involved. Um, there is a, what we refer to as the absolute sea level, or also known as eustatic sea level, which is the mean water level out in the open ocean. And that's driven by things like uh, the ocean temperature, the ocean salinity, and the amount of ice that we have on land. So it, it's driven by these big factors that change the volume of water in the ocean basins. And the one that's really important to us living at the coast is what we refer to as the relative sea level. Yeah. So that's the consequence of what's happening in the open ocean plus the movement of the land and in fact a few other complicated things like ocean currents and winds and all sorts of other things that can affect the, the sea level at the shoreline. So that's the one that's important to us. And so what we have to remember is that for the future, all of these fancy computer models predict the global ocean level out in the open ocean. And their track record in doing that is not particularly good. What's important to us is at the coast, and we've been measuring the sea level at the coast at some locations for more than a century. And in practice, that data is way 
better for for our management purposes because um, we've we've been measuring it. We can look at the trends. We can look at the variability, which is the important thing, because we know that there are significant changes in sea level between the El Nino events that we're just starting and the La Nina events that we've had for the last three years. And those things are not captured by climate models. So at the coast, we're concerned about relative sea level, which involves um, land movement. And that's always been a tricky thing in the, the 40 years I've been teaching it and, and researching in it roughly, because we couldn't put a good handle on, on the vertical land movement. We've, we've got data that tells us how the shoreline moves. Um, and we need to somehow take that away from the tide gauges. Um, but that's improved. We now have continuous GPS. We've got better surveying methods. And so we can now extract the land movement. And, and a, a very good study was done by Paul Dennis and others. And that shows us that the rate of sea level rise for New Zealand is 1.4 to 1.5 millimetres per year over the last 100 odd years with no sign of acceleration. So pretty constant. And that's, if we translate it into a century, that's 14 to 15 centimetres, which is not a problem in anyone's book. So the issue we're having is reconciling what we've measured over the last century or so with what the computer models are predicting for the future. And that is just not happening. And we have the latest thing with, with the sea rise people who are saying, oh, we need to take these global predictions and tack on the land movement, which is strictly correct, but we should use the right number. So as I've said, for New Zealand, the number is 1.5 millimetres per year. And they're trying to use numbers between 3 and 12 millimetres per year. And unsurprisingly, they suddenly say there's a crisis, there's a problem. Even at those big numbers, our history tells us that sea level changes have not been catastrophic for New Zealand. So we can go back to what, 2016, and we had the Kaikoura earthquake. Parts of the coastline there rose eight metres. Yep in the space of a few minutes. So they had eight metres of sea level drop. And at the other extreme parts of the coast dropped by three metres. So they had three metres of sea level rise in a couple of minutes. And what happened? Not a lot. We had significant effects on the ecology for a short period of time for those poor marine creatures that were lifted out of the water. And we had a few bits of the coast that got inundated but the shoreline adjusted and they're not inundated anymore. So if we can survive three metres of sea level rise in a couple of minutes, three metres of sea level rise over time spans of centuries to millennia, which is what they're talking about, probably isn't a problem at all. And so that's where we're at. We're trying to reconcile predictions that are based on the implausible, exceptionally unlikely scenario that the MFE pushes, the top-end scenario, and the real-world data that says, yes, sea level is rising, but at such a rate that we can quite easily cope with it 
provided we maintain our coastal structures and we don't do anything silly, you know, like building our houses below sea level, yep. like my family did for 1,400 years. Well, that's a great that's a great uh, intro uh, to this whole discussion. Thanks, Willem. Um, it sets the scene for those of us that have no um, no uh, academic knowledge of this. It, it doesn't seem that hard, does it? Uh, so why are we? Uh, and I don't mean to under, under underrate uh, the effort that people have gone to study this, but why do you think it is then that um, so many councils? around New Zealand, New Zealand especially, well, that's what we're talking about today, are, are hell-bent on using these implausible scenarios uh, when clearly uh, they should be inf informed enough to know that they are, in fact, implausible. And I know, Sean, we'll come to you in a minute because you're you're onto this stuff as well. But what's your view, Willem? Well, I was going to suggest Sean might, might, <laughs> might be a better place to answer it. Um, well... I originally had a position of advising the New Zealand government on sea level rise. And at that time, our philosophy, which, which was actually written into the Resource Management Act, was to consider the most likely scenario, what was most likely to happen. And then we had a shift in policy where the precautionary principle sort of took hold and in fact, in my view, went to the extreme. And so the philosophy was, well, if it might happen, we should plan for it. Despite the fact, if you read the, the guidance, it says, oh, this is for stress testing your, your plans. Mm. So, you know, you're a council and you've got a, a management plan for the coast. Well, by all means, look at it and say, what's the worst that can happen and what's going to happen to us if that occurs? That's stress testing in my view. But for planning purposes, we go for the most likely because we don't sit there and say, oh, there is an 80% chance of a major earthquake in Wellington, according to GNS, in the next 50 years. Let's immediately evacuate Parliament which is the extreme precautionary approach that they seem to be applying to the coast. So there's a lot of inconsistency, but as to why they're doing it, that's for the politicians and the, and the public to try and figure out. It's not something that's my speciality. Right, well, that's it does, fair, fair It does comment. come to the politics, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, it, it absolutely comes to the politics. And, of course, um, those of us at the, the, uh, the pointy end of paying the bills, um, are feeling the, the politics of all this stuff uh, through rates and taxes. So, um, yeah, but we'll bring in you, Sean, right now and see um, you, you've put a lot of effort into uh, your area on the Capiti Coast uh, and 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 your feedback through councils there. How are you, how are you getting on? What's what's the upshot of all this? And, I, and you've well, written some really good articles, I know, that we'll talk about in a minute. Can I just say a few words about how I ended up where I am? Yeah, well, that's um, fine. So I was... Um, I've been a lawyer most of my career, and some people think it's important that I should disclose that I worked for the petroleum industry, um, and I did, and I'm very proud that I did, uh, and I hope to do so some more of it. Um, but I'm a, I'm also a public lawyer, and, and I've been a criminal defence lawyer, and I've done other types of law, planning law, infrastructure. Um, I've been a Wellington City Councillor 
so a, uh, a politician of sorts, and I stood for election in the old tacky electorate for the recent election. Didn't get anywhere, but, but did it all the same. Um, and I have a master's in climate change science and policy from Vic University. So I went back to university in 2019, studied full time uh, and got uh, my degree with merit. Um, and, and it's a real unique sort of combination of skills because it's, although I want to be very clear, I'm not an expert in climate science and that's Willem is, 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 is but I'm not. But nevertheless, um, I became very interested in all the different climate measurements and indicators and, and tools uh, that particularly in the Wellington district uh, when I was a city councillor because I was doing my research at the same time. And I followed very closely the the, the, the sea level um, and measured at Queen's Wharf where my, my son goes to school um, over to Eastbourne every day. And um, and then kept an eye on on anything that might affect the Wellington area, um, rain rain gauge measurements, um, uh, wind wind vane measurements. Um, Greater Wellington would get annual reports from NIWA um, on on extremes and so forth. So I followed all that, and uh, and I guess um, more more recently I've been looking at the sea level estimates that came out of a project. Um, led by Victoria University scientists, guys that I, I, I know, not that well, but I know, um, with GNS scientists and some folks from overseas, and that's known as the Sea Rise Project. And, uh, and they came out with these um, very, very um, concerning uh, commentary, 1st of May last year. Um, Tony would be inundated within... 20 or 30 years. Um, same with the South Coast, uh, my constituents there, um, and then Kapiti as well. And, and I just knew that, you know, if if that was the case, and, and the reason was, was because there's subsidence going on that we didn't know about. And I know that we do know about what they call vertical land movement. We've known about it for a long time. In fact, Willem actually sent me a paper about two, three years ago. So um, this is nothing new. And so I started asking some questions, and, and I used to be an asset manager of the Maui pipeline. That's the big pipeline that goes up to Huntley. And soil movement was really important. It's a steel pipeline carrying a lot of gas that a lot of hospitals and businesses depend on, and uh, any sort of movement of soil there uh, we need to know about. So I knew about the techniques and, and, and reached out to some business acquaintances that are experts in this space, professional scientists. And they were also scratching their heads. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the uh, the Prime Minister was being interviewed. James Shaw was being interviewed. Um, um, Rod Carr was being interviewed. Um, Al Jazeera was, was broadcasting that New Zealand's sinking. And it was all a big media fest that happened the same week as the Ministry for the Environment kicked off their managed retreat consultation. Who would have thought? What a coincidence. <laughs> So anyway, I guess um, I started uh, asking questions and very quickly didn't get answers. You know, I was an elected official with uh, thousands of affected coastal residents and asking uh, the guys at GNS about their studies um, and, and at Victoria University. Um, and unfortunately, in the end, I had to use the Official Information Act to get any information. Um, I... I had actually reached out to Willem with a, uh, a, a professional scientist who was uh, working as the coastal planner for Christchurch City Council. Uh, he was also scratching his head. 
Uh, so we offered to have a meeting with the project leaders and they declined that. They would only meet with um, with members of the public or with other councillors, but, but not. And I said, I, I think we need to iron out these academic issues before we sort of, you know, start briefing councillors. And the thing is that uh, in the climate space, I think as you alluded to before, um, it's immensely political. And there seems to be a desire by some people to believe the worst is happening. Um, and I don't quite get it. I don't understand why the coastal residents of the South Coast um, would uh, would not question what's going on. Some of them have lived there for 50 years. They know that the sea level's not rising at the rate that they've talked about. Um, but nevertheless, um, people do. And I know that my councillors, many of my councillors would uh, would not be interested in hearing a a, a view that's contrary. Contrary. Um, you know, just to give you an idea, so so the, the, the model they use um, starts in 2004 with data going through to about 2010. And then they extrapolate that forward through to 2020, 2030, then up to 2130. So we can actually already test um, their model for accuracy. So their model said that in 2020, sea level would have risen by 15 centimetres. Now, over the 20th century, it's well understood and accepted knowledge that the sea level rose by 20 centimetres, and New Zealand was about in that frame as well. So they're saying that 15 centimetres over 16 years, that's on their worst-case P50 scenario with vertical land movement. The actual was two centimetres, which is spot on the average for the 20th century, uh, two, two, two millimetres a year, uh, I think it is, there or thereabouts. So... You know, I've, I've tried to engage with Ministry for Environment um, and, you know, these these extreme scenarios uh, come from the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN Climate Panel. Now, I was an expert reviewer for the, uh, the latest um, report, the first one, which deals with the physical science and so forth. Now, it doesn't really make me an expert, but uh, I did participate and uh, and it was a good good experience. Um but but the the use of these more extreme scenarios was never meant to uh, reflect back into policy, um, as Willem says. Um, you know we're supposed to be looking at what's a likely sort of scenario, um, not one that requires you know the ice sheets that have been there for millions of years suddenly melting over the next hundred years. They haven't even started melting, uh, as Willem says. Um, Although there is some debate in the um, uh, amongst scientists about whether an acceleration has been detected, the fact is that it's hard to see that there has been. And certainly the literature uh, that I've seen up to the end of the 20th century is confirms that there's been no acceleration. Um, and then the literature also says you need a data set that's about 60 years or more just to make sure that what you're seeing is actually not a natural variation uh, as a consequence of different um, ocean currents that can affect uh, the relative sea level as well. So, yeah, you, you've got this um, these the scenarios, and I'll, I'll mention, yeah, the highest one is SSP 5-8.5. So those numbers mean watts per square metre. Uh, that's the amount of energy um, that uh, is expected to be increased at the top of the atmosphere, I think it is. Um, as a consequence of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions 
at, at a very high uh, rate through to 2100. But I mean, um, that, that what they were trying to do was bookend, bookend what uh, what what's the maximum. Um, there are two there are two um, intermediate um, emissions pathways, um, and then there was a very low one, which no one really thinks is we can't really do because we're we're so far uh, down the track with emissions. So the two in the middle were were more likely to be the ones that we settle on. In fact, it's looking like it's the second one uh, from the bottom, uh, which is really good news, actually. It's good news for the climate, good news for the world. And um, the coming uh, meeting in um, uh, the COP26 or whatever it is, it's kicking off in a couple of weeks. It doesn't even mention this top end anymore. Um, and actually, they, um, you know, it, it's part of the briefing material. So, you know, why do we carry on where we are? I mean, I think that um, firstly, there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of attachment to that high end because it actually makes your climate model do something that is newsworthy, um, dare I say it. Um, it also, you do want to keep using it because then you can you can see, compare what it does to what, you know, it did five years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. So, you know, there's no harm in, in using it as, Willem says for stress testing and, and out of interest, um, what happens is if you run a climate model on a, on a low emission scenario, you might find you don't see anything really changing in your coastal environment. Whereas if you you put four million volts through it, um, bang out pops, you know the cliffs are going to go or um, or inundation, and you 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 then start recognising well what's the most sensitive part of the coastal planning that we need to focus on, but you wouldn't, you don't use it for um, policy making. I wouldn't have thought anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where my involvement. So I, I, um, I, I didn't want to bring this up during the election campaign. I thought it would be a distraction. Um, there are members of the Kapiti Coast very concerned, wanting to organise meetings. I said, no, 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 we're focusing on, uh, the things that matter, cost of living, of course. Uh, sorry, I was with the, the ACT Party. And, um, you know, and, and they had a very pragmatic approach to climate change, which I felt was the right approach, which is to benchmark our performance on emissions reductions to our main trading partners. And, and if they want to cut their cattle herds, then, then we, we can do that too. But uh, but they aren't. <laughs> so uh, we shouldn't either. Um, it'll push food prices up. So anyway, yeah, so I gave a meeting on Monday uh, to 150-odd people um, on the Kapiti Coast. There's a, a, a panel led by uh, Honourable Jim Bolger, um, and they are unfortunately embracing this extreme scenario. Also with the um, the subsidence, which isn't happening on the Kapiti Coast, it's been lifting. But during the study they did back in 2004, it was subsiding, but that was a transient uh, um, trend. And it's now reversed, and actually the current sea level, as measured by Wellington Harbour tide gauge, is well below where it was in 2016 when we had the effects of the Kaikoura earthquake. So, yeah, we um, our planners seem to be uh, hell-bent on, on adopting this, and I don't, to be fair, it's coming from scientists, um, it's coming from the IPCC, the precautionary principle is, as well, and... You know who's who's not to embrace a bit. You know, be cautious about what we do for sure. But 
if you start putting hazard lines on your limbs reports, it says things like, we expect this to be a challenging environment in 2030 uh, to a coastal property. Well, uh, the banks will, will, will move, the insurance companies will move, you'll never be able to sell it. And, and it's not based, I don't think it's based on good science. The old science was simply tide gauges, and we've got a network of tide gauges in New Zealand that are well over well, 100 years or more, and uh, and they uh, are the surveyor's key tool. So I've got my coastal property has been surveyed because we're going to do some renovations, and it says it's, <laughs> it's six metres above sea level. Wow. And they have managed to you know, use their uh, surveying equipment and geodet marks back to the Wellington tide gauge, which they've been doing since the 50s, right? And that's the tried and trusted method that we have uh, built coastal properties. And I think that we, you know, novel new technology is is to be embraced and welcomed, but it shouldn't be displacing tried and trusted methods that are uh, best international practice. New Zealand's uh, land information online um, guidance that you need to follow, but uh, but councils are, are walking away from all that, all that history, all that knowledge. And asking us to to look at a, a satellite data which no one can really access, so it's really inaccessible. A tide gauge you can Google Wellington Harbour tide gauge, up will pop a uh, a web page, and you can see what the tide gauge is doing. You can look all around the world, um, and that's you know it's a, a robust. Uh, that's instrument. and that's why I mean modelling. I I've often mentioned it here. It's it's a tool of tyrants, the way we are taking this. And uh, listeners, for those who've just joined us, we are today with. Professor William DeLong, Senior Lecturer, Earth Sciences, Waikato University, and Barrister Sean Rush, who's graced us on Greenwash for a second time. What we are debating is sea level rises and how it is impacting us. Sean, you just mentioned that we have five scenarios, and people who've listened to Greenwash often, they've heard these terms, SSP and RCP, and basically cut out all the noise it's these are basically scenarios from the you know moderate to the extreme how 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 we could self annihilate before the turn of the century now the ministry for environment document on sea level rise simply says that look at all the scenarios right up to i think 2300 and we've got these five different scenarios and different permutations and combinations of how bad things can get and since dawn began today's session by this quote that the you know newspaper carried of me in last last week's uh, public workshop on sea level rise in Southland District Council, my question there was why are we using the worst case scenario, SSP five eight point five, and I was told, and this is on the slides there, that the Ministry for Environment has requested that this is the only one. The disclaimer at the beginning of the presentation says SSP 5.8.5 is what is indicated by the Ministry of Environment's interim guidance to be modeled. So based on that, we've come out with some very extreme sea level rises. Some parts around here could be rising, you know, could see the seas rise by as much as four meters. But why should you be worried? What does it translate into in terms of policy for you? I Google and I see, you know, manage retreat. I see more overseas. I see insurances doubling, tripling, quadrupling. And why have we reached this scenario? I'm sure, uh, Professor Willem, there would be others within your fraternity who would agree with you. The way you put things out is very simple. And yet, 
our government doesn't seem to want to listen cause us some very real harm based on these implausible scenarios why is that yeah it's 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 hard to understand i think it's it's more that people have have a policy in mind and uh, this is a way of justifying it so when when i teach hazards um a key component of that is risk and that's what councillors should be concerned about is the risk to the council and that means you need to bring in some probability so way back in my first court case um this was a discussion and it got picked up and set a precedent for the Resource Management Act based on that court case. And that was that you had to have some element of risk. And okay. so we keep getting told that the scenarios that the IPCC uses have no probabilities attached, which is not actually strictly true. So the scenarios are based on assumptions and the IPCC can assign some probability to the assumptions. So when we look at the 8.5 family, we're looking at assumptions that have less than 1% probability of occurring in the next century. And so if we have one assumption, then we can safely say that that scenario has a 1% probability. But when we start looking at the IPCC scenarios, they require the combination simultaneously of a whole series of assumptions that we burn more coal than exists, that everybody in the world lives at a lifestyle that exceeds the current per capita of the United States. And when you have those, they multiply. So if we have two 1% assumptions, then we're down to um, one ten thousandth of a chance. And, and so the number of assumptions in those extreme scenarios are somewhere between 10 and 15 assumptions. So we're looking at something that's you know, 10 to the minus 20 or smaller wow. in terms of chance. To put it in perspective, that's the sort of probability that the world would be swallowed by a black hole when they turned on the Hadron Collider and they went ahead and did it anyway. Precautionary would say, no, 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 we don't do this bit of fundamental research because there is this ridiculously small probability that the world will disappear in an instant when you turn on the switch. For some reason, there's this whole mythology that's built up around it that not only um, is this bad, but it is going to happen. <clears throat> and there's a whole body of literature produced by people now, which uh, if this happens, then this is the consequence. Without saying the chances of this happening is very small, to give it some credit, the AR6 report says, oh, this is implausible, which is bureaucratic speak for saying this is impossible, which is really <laughs> where we're at. So it's exceptionally unlikely, which is this 10 to the minus 20 or, or, or smaller. Um, and, the, and, and we've got to the point where there were, at the time they were set up, multiple possible ways that we might have achieved that outcome. We're at the point now that there is no realistic pathway that we can generate enough CO2 or other greenhouse gases to reach 
that scenario. Yep. Which is why the IPCC in the fine print have basically said we should stop using it. But as Sean said, the people pushing policy are wedded to it because if we step back and the latest data is suggesting we're actually starting to track at the bottom scenario, the one that was improbable because it required, you know, massive em emission cuts and everything else, which are just not happening. So if we're tracking down at the lower end of that envelope, the consequences are small to, to, to negligible. And if you're trying to drive a policy and, and achieve things like, you know, drastically reducing the farms on this country or um, converting vast swathes of land to pine trees or shifting people away from the coast because, well, they shouldn't be living there. Um, that's not sort of news that you would like to hear. So the science is very definitely suggesting that there should be scenario number six, which is what I've argued in the environment court right from the beginning. And then scenario number six is strictly business as usual. Yep. This is what the trend has been for the last 100 years, and that should be in the mix of scenarios, and it's not. And All of our scenarios are hypothetical situations based on greenhouse gas emissions. And for your planning, you should base it on what's happened. So I've been involved in lots of cases dealing with extreme events and everything else. And the projected changes are at least an order of magnitude smaller than the natural variation. So we've just seen an extreme example of natural variation where the volcanoes erupted at Tonga. Yeah. It's affected sea level because we've ejected a whole lot of water into the stratosphere. And initially, the climate scientists told us, oh, this will come down, you know, we'll have a biblical rainfall event and everything will come back down just as fast as it went up pretty much. You know? mm. Went up in, in, in minutes and it will come down in weeks. It's still up there and it's still coming down. And for some reason, since that eruption, we've miraculously had an increase in rainfall. Yeah. Sea level went down because we pumped some of this water into the atmosphere, and it's now coming back and sea level's rising. And because water is the dominant greenhouse gas, it's it's had effects on, on global temperatures as well. But you know, that's one real extreme catastrophic effect on sea level. We have the natural variation between La Nina and, and El Nino. We yeah. have a thing called the Interdecadal Pacific Oscillation. We have a thing called the um, Polar Seesaw, where we have melting in the Arctic, which is uh, occurs for a while, and then it switches to, to melting in the Antarctic. So our media seamlessly switch from the Arctic is melting and we're all doomed to the Antarctic is melting and we're all doomed without mentioning the, the recovery and the other end. And this has been going on for as long as we can have data to, to analyze it. And the projected changes are so small, the IPCC report in Chapter 12 produces a diagram that says, when will we see the effects of climate change? And when we look at sea level we look at extreme weather. In fact, we look at everything except for temperature. We won't see any measurable effect in my lifetime 
in the lifetime of any of your listeners because it's at the end of the century, mm-hmm. you know, 100 years from now. Yeah. So should you be planning for a coastal effect that's smaller than the natural variations you see now? So my argument being pragmatic is if you plan for what is happening now, what happens in 100 years' time can be handled by the people then because that's the point at which you might see an effect from the emissions, according to all the modelling. But that doesn't seem to be the way that that it's being sold to the planners. It it doesn't, and I know it brings back the old adage: take things one day at a time. We seem to think we can sort it all, find it all today. And I'm going to ask a couple of really stupid questions: How did we ever think that just you know the sea level rise, we can just control it? I mean, there have to be a whole lot of factors that come into it. When you mentioned the Tongan Glacier, in my head, this question popped up: something exploded underwater. Did it change the seabed? Did the volume the sea was able to hold increase suddenly because of whatever, those sort of things? Because isn't something happening to the seabed where the seas will hold? Yes, yeah, yeah. That yeah. that sort of thing was automatically came into my head. We don't seem to project any of those. And then as Sean was talking about modeling, whatever gave us the idea that we need to model stuff, which we can just see with the naked eye going to the, uh, you know, watching the tidal tides come and go, why do we need to model something that is evident if we choose to look at it? Yeah, the, the argument when I was involved in, in advising the government was that we were putting infrastructure in place mm. that might last for a century. Mm. And for that infrastructure, we needed the modelling. Um, we haven't had a decision yet, but I've been involved in an environment course court for for one of our largest ports and the question was have you taken into account the effects of climate change and so I documented what the effects were projected to be and said well in 75 years time and the worst case scenario then during severe storms they might have some localised flooding of parts of the wharves. But the response was that by that time, the wharf will have to be rebuilt anyway. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. sea level is rising at a rate that it needs to be higher, they will build it higher mm-hmm. when it needs rebuilding. And for most of our coastline, that's fine. At the beginning, I said that it's a complex problem. And, and by focusing just on sea level, and just on vertical land movement is simplifying it to the point where you 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 have silly policy outcomes because you've you're missing key components of what's happening. And what's important, and and Carpety is a good coaster that uh, example of that, is that it's the sediment supply that's important. And so when we look back at the rock record, if we have sufficient sediment what sea level rise causes is accretion at the coastline. Yep. At which point your planning problems go away. <laughs> so the, the issue is, is that if we can imagine, it, there's this program on TV, Gold Rush, you know, when I'm preparing dinner, so I kind of have it going. And we 
we get the gold out of the, the, the sediment by washing it through a structure where there are holes, riffles, that the gold can fall into. If there are no holes, then there's all this heartache and problem and everything else because all the gold that they're collecting is washing away. It's the same at the coast. If you have a hole for the sand to go into as it's moving along our coastline, which it, it often does because we have lots of sediment going out to our coastline, except when we do things like build dams on the Clutha River and the Waikato River. But for the most part, we've got lots of sediment coming out, and according to the climate predictions, we're going to get even more in the future because we're going to get all this erosion of our hills and everything else. So we've got lots of sediment. If we have a hole, then it's going to accumulate. The problem we have in some of our coastal areas is that we don't have a hole because it's filled up. But if sea level rises, we've got a new hole and we suddenly get accretion. In other places, we've got an area that's low energy, which is the Carpety Coast and the lee of Carpety Island. There's a huge hole there. And the main problem they have there is that there's been so much accretion that the southern part of that hole no longer exists. So sand can't accumulate anymore. And so there are parts that erode. So if you as a council want to know what parts of your coastline are going to suffer from sea level rise, you look for the areas where there's no sediment supply. How do you find them? Well, you talk to the old people and you look at the newspaper articles, you talk to Tangata Whenua and say, where have you had coastal erosion for the last 100 years? And surprise, surprise, those are the places that you're going to have coastal erosion in the future. So as I said, it's the data we've got already that we need to look at, not the computer models. So too, it's quite simple. easy. We we know I can go to the coastline and walk along it and say, oh, this area is going to have a problem because it's eroding now. It has a sediment supply problem. If we raise the, the sea level and we create a bigger hole, there's going to be an even bigger deficit of sediment, so there's going to be a problem. What we need to try and do is figure out which parts of the coastline in the future, if we raise sea level, we'll switch from having a surplus of sediment to having a deficit of sediment. And that's mm. that's the key to our management. Um, wow. And that that's not what sea rise does. That's not what the millions of dollars they've just given to Victoria University is going to achieve because they have a simplistic argument that says, if sea level rises, then the coast is going to erode. Despite the fact that one of the key people in the program is a former student of ours who did his thesis on the Whanganui Basin, which showed that sea level rise caused accretion. So he knows that. Wow. And, and that's the, that's the basis of sequence photography. So we know that sea level rise, if there's sufficient sediment, will cause accretion, and the problem of managed retreat isn't necessary. Managed retreat, and, and I've been involved in advising that this is the place to do it uh, for, for various sites. It's for sites where, for various reasons, there is now insufficient sediment supply. So That's for parts of argument. Auckland, they've, they've built a, a wall to stop the cliffs from eroding and they've cut off the sediment supply. So there are places we can identify, but most of our coast is fine. 
So none of this is hard if you do the observation and listen to people that have um, have been studying for years. None of this is hard. Um, so, Sean, just to to get to the conclusion of this, um, what sort of what's your next next step with your efforts to try and get some common sense effectively back into your council? Well, I just want to pick up on something that Jaspreet said, and it's relevant to the observations, right? So um, we can look at the sea rise modelling for um, for where the Wellington tide gauge is. I can go to that location and pull up, and it says that by 2020, thou shalt have seven centimetres of sea level rise at the lowest emission pathway. Mm-hmm. And we got, the tide gauge tells me we got two centimetres. So, you know, the modelling, the, 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 the disconnect between the modelling community and the observational scientists has been growing wider and wider ever since the days of Hub- the great Hubert Lamb, uh, who was the greatest climate scientist of all time. And, and he would take careful observations of things like um, fossilised mammoths um, coming out of, of the ice. Well, obviously, that t- tells us that at some point this area was warmer uh, than it used to be, uh, than it is now. And, and the modelling community, unfortunately, and I'm not being critical of, of them, but modelling is incredibly complex. Um, statistical uh, analysis can be um, you know, uh, manipulated or, or it, it can be, it, it's unreachable to the ordinary person. The ordinary person and the ordinary coastal planner can go to a tide gauge and go, oh, there it is. And actually Wellington Harbour's tide gauge, if you take the average of the uh, uh, the rolling average of what's happened over the last hundred years and extrapolate that forward, you get an exact match for what would have happened in tw- will happen in 2020. And I expect we'll be pretty close in 2030 as well. So why are why are we um, um, using modelling that's showing already to be totally wrong? Uh, you know, not just a little bit wrong, but two and a half, three times wrong um, in, in this particular area and and in other aspects of climate science as well. Um, the modelling community uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s uh, secured huge amounts of funding um, for uh, supercomputers. Um, you know, and, and have made an enormous contribution, no doubt about it, since uh, I think the early um, numerical weather predictions were, were started in the 50s. Um, and, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's incredible science. But we sometimes, I just think we need to go back to reality. You know, what some people would like us to think was that coastal planners have never thought about sea level rise before. Well, I, I just doubt that's the case at all. I think coastal planners have always thought about that. That's the number one thing they have to think about. And uh, and they've been doing that since coastal planning was a twinkle in Adam's eye. So, you know, this idea that it's, it's something new and it's exciting and, and models and so on, we just need to get back down to earth and go, okay, what's the likely thing that's going to happen? And my view is that we should be looking at the, uh, the, the tide gauges maybe with some uh, localised um, estimates on vertical land movement, which I would actually say is cancelling subsidence and uplift is cancelling each other out. Over the very long-term geological time, New Zealand's coming up out out of the water. You can see it all around the country. I like Kaikoura, the Kaikoura coast. You can see 
uh, those creatures that Willem mentioned earlier uh, that, that died and, and the rocks are all there. And this is all over. Where I grew up in Taradale Napier, the highest point there is Sugarloaf and you can climb up there and find shellfish, uh, shells, fossilised shellfish there. So this is not new. So we really need to start thinking more carefully about First of all, ignoring short-term data sets about substance because they quite clearly do not model the medium to long-term. Look at the tide gauges, extrapolate that forward for, for planning purposes with, with some caution, perhaps no harm in that. Um, because, But you know, when you think about it, we've had global warming now for 100 or so years. Um, and is, is there any reason to think that, that more melt, ice is melting now than it did 50 years ago? Because the stuff that melted 50 years ago was probably lower to the ground, um, is in a warmer, you know. Is, so, you know, we don't suddenly start getting more meltwater because the easy stuff to melt's already melted. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What I mean, and in fact, we're actually seeing record snow cover. I think in um, in North America at the moment, um, and that's you know you can argue that that's consistent with climate modelling. We get more water in the atmosphere. Um, we, we therefore get more snow. So, you know, you could argue, you know, next thing we'll hear is there's record snow in Antarctica and it's all because of climate change. Um, so I just think we need to be take a, a, um, a careful perspective, a, a, a reality perspective, and we should also, you know, be open to alternative views um, uh, yeah, and be Sean, willing if, to listen. Sean, if I may interrupt you for a moment, what's happening in councils, and I'll, I'll speak for myself here, is, most councillors are generalists. We are not subject specialists. And we count on this information coming through the ministry and these guidance documents. Because, you know, as, as I mentioned to you guys before, not everyone enjoys going through over a thousand pages of IPCC document. Not everyone enjoys poring over the website of NZC Rise and using the tool and seeing what's happening. And I, for one, on the behalf of my ratepayers, I take major offense at being misguided and then being, you know, ushered down this path as if I, I cannot think for myself. I absolutely detest this. But I wonder, you know, I know we are already short of time. If you could take two minutes, Sean, and point out some of the gaping holes in this NZC Rise tool that we are using and insurers are using right now to sort of virtually destroy people's lives, their houses, uh, you know, property values and so on. What are the main faults with this tool? So, uh, and Willem might be better placed to answer this than me, but um, there was a, uh, they did took satellite data between 2004 and 2010, um, and that was chosen deliberately because it was seismically, New Zealand was seismically inactive. And as a consequence, um, you know, you need seismic activity to get the lift that New Zealand's mm. been trending on for the last billions of years sort of thing. So if I so, get this right, they're using seven years' worth of data to project 100, 200, 300 years in the future. Yeah, Am I yeah. right? Yes, okay. they are. In fact, they even stripped out the uh, big earthquakes that were that happened in, in um, the right? bottom of the South Island, right, mm -hmm. um, which would have uplifted. Um, so you take this data set that, um, shows a subsiding trend because when an earthquake happens, following it, the, the ground sinks till mm. the next one. Um, they've ignored what's known as slow slip events, well documented by GNS, uh, which are affecting company now. So they are imperceptible earthquakes that happen over months and years that slowly drag the uh, the coast uh, back up. Um, and the uplifting trend from 
you know, the episodic earthquakes, you know, 1855 in Wellington, 1931 in, in Napier, um, and Kaikoura as well. So, you know, and, and, and so they've got this data set of, of New Zealand sinking, um, and it's not. Uh, then they're adding on to that their uh, IPCC calculations of eustatic sea level, which is interesting. It's a funny old way of doing it because eustatic sea level means nothing to a coastal owner in uh, on the Kapiti Coast or at Wellington Harbour. It's got no relationship whatsoever to to um, relative sea level around New Zealand. But nevertheless, that's what they're doing. And so, of course, then they're running it through their models, their climate models, which, as I mentioned earlier, are already showing a incredibly um, error-prone uh, approach um, to come up with this big, um, big problem, which isn't really being observed by anyone who lives on the coast. And well, then they're being yeah. driven by activists uh, and, and some outspoken scientists. And, you know, Willem mentioned a student before. And um, not to mention a few million dollars that's gone in the funding. Yeah, look, I don't want to be, you can be cynical about this, but, you know, I know that they're trying to do, make new science and do good things. But, you know, I was a city councillor representative. Uh, I was a member alumnus of the Earth, uh, Earth Science and Geography School of Victoria University. One of the guys I actually shared a platform with when we briefed an iwi about different things and we had a good warm conversation. We'd seen each other since and they wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't meet with me, wouldn't explain. Um, and, uh, and and then, you know, I started getting support from, from Willem. I knew I was on the right track. Uh, another leading scientist in the geoscience space at uh, Canterbury University was also saying, you're absolutely right, Sean, doesn't want to be named. Um, in fact, this is the problem, actually. Uh, the, the sort of scientists that I've spoken to don't want to go on the record. What we do have, though, a little bit of hope next week at the Geoscience of New Zealand conference is a poster session uh, by uh, by two scientists uh, and a Otago University scientist. So these two of them are actual geoscience experts, Tim Stern and Simon Lamb. And the other one is Paul Denise, who's a genuine sea level expert. And they are going to present their poster, which says that, you know, we've got to move away from this sea rise modelling and go back to the tide gauges. So hopefully someone at Ministry for Environment listens to that and um, and we can maybe start getting a bit of traction with them. Final comments from you, Willem. Have you got anything to add? Yeah, to no, I, I agree with that. And the, the thing that concerns me from the science point of view is that the projections that they have in there, because I've deconstructed their data and compared it to the the vertical lift land movement produced by GNS, which is a key component of it, and the IPCC projections. And they have actually tweaked the IPCC projections, so they're not the projections that have come out of the IPCC, but they've been modified. And so what I've been waiting for in part of their peer-reviewed publication is an explanation of what they have done and why they have actually inflated these, these numbers for New Zealand, given that the work done by SeaRise in its early days showed that the the eustatic sea level rise, the absolute sea level rise for New Zealand is less than half of of this global one that they're using. So there are components of what they've done that have not yet been peer-reviewed, and that is a concern to me because they're not telling us what it is they've done to produce the numbers that are going in. So people say we should use peer-reviewed research to to advise our policy well sea rise which is being pushed as a policy tool 
has not been peer reviewed and comes with a disclaimer that says it's not suitable for use for 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 planning learning and that that i think is is my final final view of it yep fantastic look um we've taken an hour of your time gentlemen and it's interesting uh as a layman at the end of all that I just think of the words complicit uh, in terms of the officialdom presenting this, the lawyer, uh, sorry, the uh, politicians and the and the officials within departments. And, and the other word that comes to mind is duplicitous. And it bothers me because, as I said, as a layman, as a farmer, I'm paying the bill, uh, as you are. And we're sick of this nonsense in, the, in this country, uh, especially with our, the state of our books. It's not, not flash, and yet we can still put more costs onto ratepayers um, through councils or through government policy. And interestingly, um, Sean, in your document uh, that you wrote with Catherine Moody, you said at the end, we need to be more realistic when it comes to policy development regarding sea level rise projections and managed retreat, screwing the scrum with the use of unlikely and implausible climate change scenarios, uh, SSP 5 to 8.5 and 8.5H plus needs to be yellow carded. Well, Thinking of the Rugby World Cup and the all-black captain, it needs to be red-carded. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your, your contribution today. So we had Dr. William DeLonghi from Waikato University and Sean Rush, a barrister from Wellington. Um, we loved having you on because that, for the layman and me, it just um, made so much uh, uh, fit into place. So thank you very much, gentlemen. And um uh, we hope to have you back sometime, but on perhaps a different subject. I'd love to know more about LIDAR, for instance. I'd love to know a lot uh, about a lot of different things. But, Jasper, what do you think? Have we got Absolutely. enough to get your get your council back on track? <laughs> that remains to be seen. But, yeah, I am, I'm glad we ended at that note. We do need a reality check. As Sean knows and others up in Wellington, people are facing real-time ramifications for these implausible models and that cannot be allowed to continue so thank you gentlemen for helping bolster our faith that we end just going down with this right so, so thanks very much happy to help out and i'll happily come to your council and, and public participation and share my thoughts Jasper. thank you sean we might just take you up on it and thank yeah. you so much Willow. it's all right i enjoyed my time down there when i did the humbridge track uh, earlier in the year oh fantastic Altex Machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed. You're with me, Jasprit, and we've done a switcheroo again. Tom Nicholson is on, a, on his break, and we have Jill Booth back here with me talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And today, Jill and I are going to be moving on the list, down the list, and we are at SDGs 9 and 10. Let's begin with SDG 9, Jill. And hi. Oh, I can't wait. Hi. Hi. How's it all going? <laughs> it never okay. stops. It never stops. So SDG 9, Jill, and they talk about industry, innovation, and infrastructure, the United Nations, that... We need to now have countries working towards more resilient infrastructure so that businesses can thrive, innovation is fostered, there is green infrastructure all around, and ultimately, in their utopian dreams, 
they presume this would lead to thriving communities and safety from natural disasters and climate change. I don't I don't believe they believe that for a minute. <laughs> I think they've just found out a, a great way to um make our make our company structure a lot smaller, global, and um yeah, and how to make money out of this, you know, sustainable industrialization, foster innovation and build resilient infrastructure. Um it must be the Dutch in me, but you know, I'm not panicking about a one meter or one millimeter um, sea rise, and we've always been able to build incredible infrastructure and resilient infrastructure right across the world. So, um, yeah, let's go. Where do, where do you want to start with this one, Jasper? Let's look at local government, Jill. Let's look at the fact, not in just local government, just look at, and I'm drawing on this uh, very interesting discussion that Michael Laws had on the platform recently, and I think people should listen to that one, about uh, another elected member from Environment Canterbury. And they were talking about the sort of costs their communities are facing and how the future of the local government reforms that began earlier this year, the consultation, the so-called consultation, is talking about how local government is not fit for purpose. Everyone needs money. And uh, ultimately what's happening is communities around the country are facing eye-popping rates rises in the years, in fact, even in the next 12 months in, in this current economic climate. This, the way I look at it, the way I view it, is a direct effect by all this nonsense in terms of policy being foisted down on us. Yes, and that was an interesting interview because, you know, he was saying that, like, every sector is crying out for more money. They they need more money. Uh, we don't need more money. We need a lot less money going to um, the bureaucrats and the consultants. And, you know, if, if we rejigged our local money um, and threw out half the nonsense, we'd probably do quite well. So it's... It's not so much a lack of money, it's how it's spent. But it's I think, policy. Local it's how much policy you are now being asked to look at every time you bring in something, say, like the farm freshwater plants, or having to relook yeah. at all your landfills, or you need to create, I don't know, bicycle lanes, or you need to create rooftop gardens, pop on solar panels, wind energy, all of this. This all of this has a cost. It does, but it also goes back to not that many big companies. It's sort of like the, the little bit of the transfer of our wealth from, from us to them. So when you look at all the big consultancy firms, you, you talked about one, Tonkin and Taylor. Mm. Um, so that's a New Zealand company, but when you go and have a very good look into it, it's tied up with a whole lot of um, other alliances, global health, climate, um, global climate, um, the BBC. So there's a whole network that these companies um, are involved in quite often. And Tonkin and Taylor is quite a big one. Yeah, it says we are New Zealand's leading environmental and engineering consultancy with offices in New Zealand, Australia, and project offices in the wider Asia Pacific. And when I look at what they do, it says, and you know, listeners, bear with me. This is just a brief list of what they say they do. We do coastal services, catchment management, coastal geomorphology, 
coastal enhancement, protection, hazard, risk assessment, climate modeling, dam break assessment, environmental planning, noise and vibration, project deliveries, revegetation advice, sustainable business services, waste and contaminated land strategies, landfill monitoring, landfill gas management, air quality, geotechnical work, transportation, pavement design, geometric design, traffic engineering, all of this is going mm. on. And I would have thought, and we, we need all of this. Don't, don't get me wrong here. But shouldn't all of this be happening within government? We have a works department, a public works department, people who are answerable, accountable. And the way I see it, and this might be a very simplistic way of looking at it, when all of these core functions end up going to a consultancy, there is is that democracy being outsourced? Is that infrastructure being outsourced to private players, which it often is? But where is the accountability? What is local government doing then? So, well, what is local government doing if it is outsourcing so much? And, you know, I've said to you before, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that human beings do quite well. We, we make mistakes, um, but we have managed to grow and build cities and we've made a, a mess and we've managed to clean up and something new comes along and we made a mess again. Um, but we constantly clean up after ourselves. But now we seem to have these huge companies um, tangled up with other huge companies who are telling us exactly what we must do in our area. And I'm really big on bringing our local local solutions back to local people. Um, and these companies tend to look through a very narrow lens of climate change. Everything is around climate change um, and sustainability. So, you know, it's a bit like when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And, and some things are just fine and can be left alone and then developed as we need them. But this whole... This whole, you know, that when you think that um, a lot of these companies, they think that people are, are dying all over the place because of climate change, that climate change is out of control, that we've got far more disasters and they're trying to prepare for these things that, that just aren't happening here in New Zealand. And how much do we pay for it, Jasper? How much do we pay for it? I mean, listening to the Environment uh, Canterbury elected member with on the Michael Laws discussion, he mentioned something on the lines of, he said, 120 million for various consenting regimes and freshwater plants and others on, from the council side. And then he said 80 million is what their community there would be giving in consents. I'm guessing it's over a few years. All doesn't happen right away. But that's $200 million that the community in Canterbury has to cover for one particular segment. And does putting a policy there ensure better water? Or is that, does, I mean, can we declare that a consenting regime will lead to better outcomes? Can we declare that if today, right, everyone starts living in high density apartments for which the infrastructure via the smart cities uh, network of Australia and New Zealand is being created? what amount of global warming would be reduced? They can't put a figure on it. They can't tell us this, you do this, 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 all of New Zealand by next year will be 0 0.2 degrees less. They can't. Yeah, no, they can't. The, the smart cities infrastructure is an interesting thing. Um, what they want to do with smart cities is build where there is already existing infrastructure. So you already have all your water infrastructure. And I think a lot of, 
a lot of stuff around fresh water is actually to force us into smaller and more more compact um more compact places but because i'm old and i'm a cynic a lot of the science that i hear about water and water testing and and degrading quality i actually don't believe and i really encourage people to get their own water tested independently and how much of those tests yeah. would, be, would be again conducted by the same consultants who are actually involved in the consenting and policy development also are people going to do themselves yeah. out of a job no yeah it's um but you know this the, the whole this whole sustainable um industrialization is is quite you know they've broken it down into quite a few sections so you know it raise industry share of employment and gdp well what does that mean um increase the access of small scale industrial and other enterprises to financial services including affordable credit so that's another part of the cobweb you know the everything when you follow the the money trail um yeah. upgrade infrastructure and retrofit industries to make them sustainable but that will profit companies like fletchers and the big building companies because everything's got to be brought up to a, to a green scale of of building um that like you said what's the outcome how do we know that's going to have any <laughs> yeah where is the tangible benefit you are asking for more and more you're saddling you're not even asking it there's no ask there it's simply you will cough up this is what we put in place you will cough up this is another hoop you need to jump through you will cough up and that's that is what's happening from uh, you know a quarter acre section they've told kiwis now you need to look at a, a quarter of an our city and that's where you will live work and play yeah. and uh, you are going to pay through your nose for that privilege it is galling it is you know we're putting 680 million dollars of funding so remember this was from from the report i'm reading from was it uh, 2016 mm. um so 680 million dollars of funding over 10 years to be invested in a better start aging well building better homes healthier lives high value nutrition um biological heritage our land our water it carries on and on and on but what has that got to do with an out of control climate none of that is measurable all of that is what you're signaling yeah. but what all of that does is lead to unsustainable debt completely unsustainable the rate rises this country is facing right now there might be a few places that are better off for now but the rate rises that are coming uh, are going to see you know a reckoning coming mighty soon yeah because there'll come a time when people can no longer afford and you can no longer keep pushing this so if we have all of these experts and consultants why isn't anybody screaming from the rooftops that this is actually what is going to happen you know and i i understand new zealand a lot of new zealand's houses are quite cold but you know you go back to the day we were also quite tough and we used to wear about three or four layers of clothing <laughs> um oh. you know but but we've got we've still got good houses then again the point comes jill it's like telling people who can't afford uh, you know bread and milk that hey there's some caviar planned for you if you can't afford something that is it if you cannot afford any more policy for uh, whatsoever purpose for saving the earth for uh, generations 100 years later are you how many of the people are ready to sacrifice their present 
and their children's future because the next 30 40 years the way i look at it and pardon my french are completely messed up i won't use the word i was going to are completely yeah. messed up <laughs> well But, done i like your restraint <laughs> yeah But this well, is you know what are what are our children going to inherit? You know, um, they will inherit our debt. There's a good chance they won't be able to inherit um, our private property. Mm -hmm. um, and and this is all for saving the world. And remember, this is not happening just in New Zealand. It's happening in 193 countries across across the world. So you know, this is a global boondoggle. And um, too much bureaucracy too many consultants and not enough room for us to just really breathe and get on with it and i also think you know we need to take our fair share of the blame jill too distracted people too distracted sometimes i think we don't really care beyond the next beer beach barbecue in no particular order <laughs> well that's true you know squirrel <laughs> <laughs> um also You know, as human beings, we, we tend to be relatively trusting and we trust that the people that we've put in charge um, are in charge. Yeah. So it's, you know, if, and we, and yeah, so this, this is how this is. I mean, just, just look at the infrastructure anywhere. You're talking about resilience mm -hmm. cities. You go and look at Toronga. That's, you know, a shell, a ghost of what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I was in that area from 2009 to 2015. That general area, about a hundred k's away, so some a place where we would travel quite often. Look at all the cities. You have retailers pulling out, smaller retailers hitting the wall, and they talk about small businesses thriving. Yeah, that's just just yeah. like the double speak that you and indulges in. But let's now move on to sustainable development goal number ten. This is one of my faves, absolute faves. <laughs> It says reduce inequality within. And among countries, what could be simpler? Let's just reduce inequalities. How do you do that? Well, you know, like you said earlier, communism—just one word, communism. Everybody's reduced to being equally um, miserable. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I bet the people in Venezuela are no happier than the people in North Korea. No, no. And you yet, know. if I look at the United Nations website. Uh, on the UNEP United Nations Environment Program under SDG 10 it says there needs to be the challenge that we need to face is exploitation of natural resources which is leading to inequality which is fueling conflicts worldwide it says climate change disasters are exacerbating existing inequalities because, because the poorer countries are bearing the brunt of the west's affluence and you know wasteful uh, lifestyles and we need to promote financial institutions to have again give access to everyone now we are seeing that australia this week has spoken about the fact that it's going to start giving visas permanent residencies to certain islanders uh, from the pacific because climate change they are talking about pushing now uh, you know the push for natural resources but who's driving the demand for lithium for the mining that's happening in mongolia in africa who is actually pushing these inequalities well you know if you if you're going to go to a green energy um which we are you know doing 
that means the poorer countries are being exploited for their for their mineral wealth. And this is that that gobbledygook um, that the UN is so good at coming up with, like pretending <laughs> that everything is going to be all touchy feely on the outside. But you know, when you look at the the mess that they're creating of of the globe with their lithium mining, those huge lithium mon- ponds is something to to be seen. Um, <clears throat> the excavation of, of our rare min- minerals, which China has most of, um, you know, and the countries that they're taking them from remain poor, often because they've got dishonest leadership. You know, so so all this touchy-feely greenwash that we've got going on in Western countries, while well, we're just destroying the poorer countries. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And, you know, it is, it's easy to feel virtuous about certain things that people might be having. And people in the West, or even in, you know, where this is happening, to say that we are not influenced by personal interests, selfish self-interest is stupidity everyone is mm-hmm. so if there's an incentive to buy an electric car and there's a subsidy there people will avail of it if there's a subsidy to set up a solar system people will avail of it and if the numbers make sense in the free market you should do it but if you are availing a subsidy and then going there realize that someone is paying for that mm. yeah and it's usually the poorest that it, that it, it pays for it. you know every subsidy is government money and every government you know all government money is is um citizen money but you know this target goes beyond that too it's um empowering inclusion ensure equal opportunity policies to achieve greater equality what the hell does that mean that's it what i keep what, asking myself it is the um, whole thing that the u.s calls affirmative action and we have seen in terms of hipuapua and we have seen in terms of a separate Maori Health Authority. We've seen in terms of all the polytechnics being combined into one monolith, which is failing, already, you know, bleeding money. But all of that, that affirmative action was done for inclusion. And you have now, I was looking at uh, Genesis and, yeah, Genesis Energy's loans with Westpac for some, you know, green sustainability linked loans. And they have to do something for the Maori rangatahi, they have to do a certain something for women's inclusion and all of this. But what is that actually doing? People keep thinking that, hey, why is everyone suddenly things are getting racist? But that is the whole push from the United Nations. That's translating into your banks, getting you to sign yes. loans, especially for bigger providers. You'll have, you know, you look at the uh, sustainability link loans of all these providers. All of them have more than the financial metrics there. Well, part of this SDG ten too is to is the regulation of financial markets. Mm. You know, again, too. So that's that's you know pulling all your banks into into doing the right thing. Yep. Um, talking about equality, I was reading this morning that um the women's swim team in the states none of them are going to show up if um their I male said. colleague turns up to, to race against them and and that just lifts my heart so you know again the the complete um contradiction of trying to make everybody equal and give them equality when clearly they're not from the start yeah you know and we'll never be equal but you can't have you can't have biological men in women's sports and then demand equality but that is it if i i'm just uh, looking at 
this article, this is from a couple of years ago, Genesis and Westpac sign a $100 million sustainability-linked loan with market-leading emission reduction targets. But in the fine print, the loan says that what else would Genesis do? It has committed to delivering a range of education and training employments for young people in its communities. These include annual apprenticeships for Maori and funding part allocated to the Naga Ara Partnership. It uh, secondary and tertiary scholarships in STEM and others. You have Fletcher's sustainability team talking about how they now have 10 days of transition, gender transition and affirmation leave and it uh, its parent company being the first one in New Zealand to achieve the much wanted rainbow tick. All of this that we see that's coming into the corporate sector is coming down from the United Nations, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not. And does anyone actually think, Jill, do you think there's going to come a time when all of us are equal? They like diversity, I thought. Well, no, no, we're never going to be equal, but I haven't told my husband he might be due for menopause leave. <laughs> I think I'm just going to keep that one a secret from him. But, you know, I'm I'm taking away his um, his equity and equality. <laughs> uh, I know. And and that that's another word, equity. I think I detest it just as much as I detest the word sustainable because neither of them mean what they say. Sustainable is suddenly yeah. all about putting us into debt and equity well, is all about yeah. demanding equal outcomes without any, just wanting legislated equal outcomes. Yeah. And, um, you know, everything means the opposite actually of, of what, of what they say. I, you know, I can't hide my loathing of the United Nations. Um, I, I can't, I can't stand the fact that we're just not allowed to run as a country. Um, without this constant interference on on everything we do now, and when I was told that this would that these um, the UN was going to interfere in every part of my life, I actually didn't believe it for a start. But boy, it is there in spades. It's quite it frightening. Is. Yeah, it is. But what's equally there in spades is now a whole lot of people. Suddenly, this word, the United Nations and the SDGs, have entered into the vocabulary. I hear people talking about it, and it's no longer hidden. It's no longer hidden under the guise of, you know, some agreements signed everywhere. Most private players have UNSDGs somewhere or the other on their website. And if I were you listeners, I would be looking at our bigger consulting firms and seeing exactly how much work is being done within uh, the ambit of your local government or central government and how much is being outsourced. So... At that point, I think Jill and I will call this conversation to an end. We'll be back next week with the next uh, couple of SDGs, and they're going to be a humdinger. I think it's resilient cities and all of this. Let's dissect. Right. Yeah, <laughs> let's dissect Auckland and Wellington next time around, Jill. But thank you so much for joining me today. And Tarola. yes, thank you. And thank you so much to all of you for listening to Greenwashed. This is Jasprit Boparai signing off. See you again next week. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.